0: Hey everybody! Welcome to Row Hunting Resources podcast. All right, so it is March first when I'm recording this. Uh, apologize for a little bit of delay, but I've been just uh, chewing through a bunch of different stuff, and yeah, um, it, it, it's it, there's so many things going on in Colorado right now, and and just other issues going on from the sportsman world that um, I'm I'm falling into my normal trap of letting perfection get in the way of. Of good enough I had a friend of mine uh, somebody I, I value uh, brought that to me or talked to me the other day about that saying hey don't don't let perfection get in the way of, of good enough and, and I, I tend to let myself get into that mode where I get everything ready and then another little piece of information comes out and so I go and rework it and everything go go through it and then all of a sudden next day here's another little piece of information all oh, I okay gotta wait. If I keep doing that, I'll never get anything to you. So I guess I've just got to just keep giving you periodic stuff so that way we can keep up on some of this stuff. I haven't even gotten into some of the fun stuff that I want to talk about. But this Colorado issue with um, the wolf issue, it, it sucks because it's, it's, it, it's worse than what I had originally thought. Back when the—in 2020, when the ballot initiative went before the people of the state— You know, there was a lot of the initial conversation was that, oh, just you know, they they just you know, it was just a neat idea, and we want to have wolves in Colorado. That's kind of how it was portrayed in the sportsman community, at least publicly, at least that that I was able to grasp. You know, get a hold of. Again, I'm not a resident of Colorado anymore, so I'm kind of at arm's length with what's going on. And so initially, you think, oh, okay, so they passed it to where you want wolves in Colorado. No, that ain't what happened at all. The more we dive into it, the more you look at it. And like I talked about this last time, no, this this was a coordinated, uh, this this was, this was calculated. This was coordinated. This was very very well crafted, and this isn't a recreational uh, endeavor. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about that today, guys. Like the title says, uh, rest in peace, um, dead man walking. I think on February 22nd, 2023, we'll go down in Colorado history as the beginning of the end of hunting and I'm just, I'll, I'll just own it. Again, these are my opinions, okay? You can take them or leave them, do whatever you want. I, I don't give a crap. These are my opinions. You wanted, my, wanted to know my opinion, you're going to get my opinions. I... and and we're going to, we're going to go into day, I'm going to, I'm going to dive in a little bit of uh, the kind of the justification of, of where I, uh, the, the credentials, if you will, of where I'm developing my opinions, but I think February 22nd, 2023 is going to end up being the the day when we saw, we watched hunting in Colorado, uh, fundamentally changed to where I I think it's the beginning of the end. Um, Like I said in the title, you know, dead man walking i think our elk hunting in colorado is is done done as far as any stretch of the imagination of even trying to keep what we've uh, been able to experience in the state as as of yet um because of how this this has been written how, how the how the uh how the the or the, the law the colorado revised statute 33 to 105.8 how it was written how the governor is stacking the Wildlife Commission right now, um, how the commission is, is behaving right now. Uh, because if you watch it, I mean, it, that's the thing, is, is you really owe it to yourself. Um, I always, again, I, I've, I've hammered on this before. I'm going to continue to always hammer on it. You, you need to become a student of value sets and personalities and understanding why people do why they, what they do and, and their motivations behind it. And looking critically at what they say versus what they do and watching body language and and just... Because, again, I think, and I'm going to talk about this later, amateur hour is over. Like, Colorado sportsman's politics, Colorado sportsman's advocacy, amateur hour is over. It's it's done. Because you're not dealing with amateurs here. Um, You are dealing with absolute professional wildlife activists and advocates that... Do not share share your personal value set. And this is their time to mold Colorado ungulate management, wolf management, but more important to that, deeper than that, ungulate management in their their image. Um you, you can watch that. And I and I recommend to everybody do watch, even if you don't live in Colorado, even if you don't recreate in Colorado, even if you don't plan on ever hunting in Colorado, those of you that are in Washington State, I think it's it would be valuable for you to watch. The, the commission meetings, and and they're online, you can go to the Wildlife Commission, go to the Colorado Parks and Wildlife page, you'll see on a tab on the left-hand side, there's, or, you know, there's different places you can find it, but the Wildlife Commission, you can click on the Wildlife Commission button, you can see where, um, you, if you dive down through there, you can see where their their YouTube channel, uh, and you can even probably go search YouTube, and bring up their Wildlife Commission, Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission YouTube channel, the commission meetings, and just watch it. Uh, watch not only the public testimony, but more importantly, watch the body language and the the it, who's saying what on the commission, and watch their body language. Because I think really what you're seeing now is the value sets, uh, the balance of the value sets on the Wildlife Commission right now are set. I, I think you can see the writing in the wall, writing on the wall. Um, where hunting is well, huh, how do I put this? You only have a couple people on that wildlife commission that that have a strong stance in favor of sportsmen. The rest of the wildlife commission are either hardened animal activists, uh, definitely definitely leaning on a, a, a hard anti-hunting sentiment especially when it comes to to wolf hunting but in predator hunting in general but i think you can see evidence that it's anti-hunting in general uh just based on some of the comments over these past several months through this process of of you know bringing this plan the recovery the the reintroduction and management plan forward and then through the the public comment period on it um not only is there are there a number of people on the, being placed on the commission right now that are strong anti hunters you have other people on the commission this is my opinion that have a strong and, and you can look at it 's not even I, I shouldn't even i shouldn't even qualify it as my opinion because it 's in their bios i mean you look at the bio- you know biography of these the commissioners uh some of these commissioners, and they put it right in their biography in the fact that they are about equity they are about diversity and inclusion and it's not about just the color of skin or the nat- the the value set that they have it's it's uh, it's well it is about value sets it's the entire ideology of this anti and and I'll 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 state it my opinion is we're going to start seeing some of these people that have straight up Anti, this this belief of this this the patriarchy of the cisgendered white male dominated wildlife management field. Like wildlife management, wildlife conservation is run by straight white males. You know, there's there's a couple token females in there. There's a couple token minorities in there. But but the past how many ever decades has you know of wildlife management in North America has been driven by the, the, the patriarchy of the cisgender, you know, the straight white male, if you will. And we need to change that and bring equity to the table and bring other disenfranchised ideas. It's not even people, it's just ideas to the table. And fundamentally, again, you go back to listening to what Obama said back in his term, they're on the cusp of fundamentally transforming America back in Obama's days. Well, you listen to some of what's being said in the Wildlife Commission, I really do believe that some of these wildlife commissioners, and I think it's now squarely on the vast majority of the commission, is they are on the cusp of fundamentally transforming what wildlife conservation and management means at a state level. Um, They are very much in line with what the Wildlife for All platform is, wherein they want to move away from a a user pays model. They want to move away from a consumptive use model. They, they, they don't value it. They have zero value for it. Um, and the commission now because of the governor is stacked with those people. And I talked about it last time. This is where the sportsmen have lost power. You, you guys have no power. I'm sorry. You have no power. I'm not meaning that disrespectfully, but you have no power. Um, because literally some of these, I, 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 based on what you, if you listen to them and you watch their body language, you read their their bios and you, you deep dive into who they are and what they've been involved with so far and you start looking up some of their other comments. I mean, this is, this is a, and I know that the, the Amendment 114, the, the Wolfrey introduction in Colorado, only passed by 0.91% of the vote, but they do look at this as a mandate. And it's a mandate to stamp out what they see as a grotesque ecological injustice and they want to bring back, they want to bring to the the discussion an an equity to wildlife policy. In my opinion, make no bones about that, this is going to be an all out crucifixion of hunting and what we've seen in just hunting in general, I, in my opinion, the the collect the collective sins of the hunting community are about to be stamped out, and Colorado is is that is that mechanism by which they're going to stamp that out. Um. Again, um. This this is not this was not. This wolf introduction plan, I know some of you think this and and i I can't stress this enough. This was not done by someone who's sitting in there in in their backyard in Brighton or whatever We're like you know what would be a cool idea, neat idea no this you start reading how this one o five point eight the the Colorado revised statute was drafted, and what the wording is it there's not an ounce of act- accident in there, and I'm going to dive into some of the Problems that I see coming up for you guys in Colorado here in, in just a little bit, but because um, I've got it sitting here next to me and I've got it all highlight, highlighted, highlighted and, and marked up. But um, I mean, you can when you sit and you start watching these commission meetings and you start watching what happened on the twenty second. Again, you can hear it in the commission, the commissioners' dialogue. Um, you, I, I mean, you heard it in the testimony. I mean, you, the, the fact that they 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 had testimony from people outside of Colorado, and people that were in Colorado and outside of Colorado, the, the very people that were that drafted the language, the they drafted 105.8 before the 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 proposition even was voted on it. They had the language already drafted. They knew exactly what they wanted. They knew exactly what their intent was and where they were headed with this whole discussion. And and especially when we're talking about the, the issue with uh, not allowing any hunting whatsoever of wolves. I'm like, that's, that's they, they put in the law, it was non-game for a reason. But you heard in the testimony even and you hear with the commissioners that even lethal control of wolves in the case of livestock issues is going to be a fight. And the real telling part for me was going back and watching the commission meeting on the 22nd and and watching the body language and, and listening carefully to the commissioners and watching just watching the body language of the agency folks, you can literally just sit there and watch the the commission marginalize the agency's desire and input. Like, the agency is not in charge here. In the past, the agency was in charge. The commission would listen, usually would rubber stamp whatever the agency wanted to do, However, the agency or the commission would would, you know, they would interject one or two things here or there, you know, not nothing major. This is this is not the case. It's it's one hundred and eighty degrees opposite the case, to where you can see, especially now that reading is on there, uh, and and I, well, it doesn't matter individuals, but you can see now where the commission is is the commission feels that they are under a mandate. And the commission now is driving. The, the activists are driving this ship. Um, the problem is, oh, oh, sorry, sorry. because, so, like, for for instance, and, and I talked about before uh, about you know, and I'm going to talk about here in a little bit. Um, well, shoot, I, I don't. Let me, let me pause it. Let me. I'll pause it. I'll, I'll pause it here in a minute, because it, it gets to uh, a different section in, in what I want to talk about here in a minute. I don't want to jump real quick. But anyway, this this isn't, again, what I talked about last time, uh, this isn't going to stop. Um, the only thing that's going to stop this is a change in governor or the courts, or, or the, the change, a change in governor, a change in the state legislature, or the courts. And quite honestly, I, I really believe that even the change in a change in legislature really isn't going to do it because I think even a change in the legislature, I think he's going to find the activists filing suit and, and suing the state of Colorado, um, and, and you're going to be in the court. So I think the only thing that's going to really shut this thing down is court action. Not let me start. Sorry, sorry I, I misspoke. There is no shutting this down. There is no shutting this down. The only thing that I can that, that will help rein in a runaway activist agenda is going to be a change in the governor who then reappoints an entire different wildlife commission and then hopefully, hopefully there's also a legislature that goes along with it and then you can weather through the uh, court battles but I think that's the only thing that's going that's going to change this is either court action or a change in a governor. And and quite honestly, it's probably going to be only court action. So there were some questions that came up, and this is where I I um, I wanted to take this. So a couple people wanted to know uh, you're okay. It's, it doesn't matter if they were critical or not. There are some people that that, that said, okay, Chris. Well, you know, where are you get you know what, what's your opinion? You're like how you, how are you coming to these conclusions? What you, blah, blah blah blah. It's not going to be as bad as it is. Blah well, blah. Like, you know, okay, okay. I, that that's fair. It's a fair criticism. If you, if you don't know my profession And most people don't know my professional career as f- as far as my wildlife... My private... As a wildlife biologist, I do my row hunting resources stuff. That is part... That's just a part of what I do. Especially in the past. I do more of it now, but especially the habitat stuff these past 10 years here in Northwest Kansas. But prior to that, uh, and even concurrently while I've been here in Northwest Kansas, um, we have a, a, a an ecological services company, Row Ecological Services consulting company. And we've been doing that since early two thousands. And the bulk of of where I come from when I'm talking about these activists and and, and the wolf advocates, the wolf activists, and what's coming down the line. Like there's some of you that feel that oh Chris Rowe's just doom and gloom. Um, you're not positive anymore, you're just it's just all this doom and gloom and stuff. Okay. I, I'm I'm dooming I hope I'm not doom and gloom. I hope I'm I hope I am bringing you information to make you wake up and start thinking because I think we've been asleep and sitting on our hands for way too long. I'll get to some more of that here in a minute, but I'm I'm hoping I'm I'm trying to wake people up is 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 what I'm doing, and unfortunately, it's going to be uncomfortable conversations. And this is this discussion with the with the wolf plan right now. Is one of those because I'm sorry, I, I was not a resident. I'm not a resident in Colorado, so when Colorado decided to put 114 on the ballot, I didn't pay attention. It's not my state. I I, I don't have a, a say in it. Um, and to be honest, I, I, these past ten years, I've I've been wanting to. I've tried to stay out of the politics. I, I spent more than ten years in Colorado, neck deep in it, eyeballs deep in it, over my head in it. And I when I moved to Kansas I was like, you know what? I just want to be done with it. And I just want to I just want to walk away. And so I did. I checked out. I didn't pay attention. And I for what it's worth, I apologize cuz I I just I figured someone else will step up, someone else will fill in, someone else will provide whatever. Maybe it ha- maybe it did, maybe it didn't. I don't know, but I sat qu- I sat silent for a long time and and not that I'm going to move the needle on anything by having these conversations, but at least if if I shared some information with the general public, maybe something can can be done with it. I don't know, but the bottom line is this: I, I'm not trying to be doom and gloom. I've just lit, I, I've spent the past twenty some years working with, not with, working through animal activists that. Have been allowed to not allowed. That's wrong. It, that sounds that's that sounds uh that's in animal activists who navigated their way into making public policy and quite honestly law, and then the ramifications of dealing with it. That's how my business exploded in the early two thousand early and mid two thousands, and. Some of you have many, most of you probably have no idea what I what we've done on that side of the spectrum to where you don't have a basis of understanding of where I'm coming from and what my basis is of, of understanding is regarding, Dealing with activists and what I'm literally watching happen in real time with this wildlife commission, and what I see with this wolf issue, and why I think it's so dire, and why I say I think I think Colorado elk hunting, as we know it, is a dead man walking. Get if you if you're if you're loving to if you're loving your Colorado elk hunts right now, man, these next five plus years or next five or so years, enjoy every freaking one of them because I think as we move forward over time, it's done it's done and, and let me, so let me give you a little bit of my backstory so you can understand what I'm, what I'm talking about and I'm going to give you this backstory because you can search it for yourself, it's all public record you can verify what I'm saying, now I'm going to give you the broad strokes I'm not going to, I'm not going to go tit for tat on 20 years of, uh, but I'm going to give you the broad strokes of what happened in Colorado already with animal activists who navigated their way into a position where they could, they were allowed to make public policy and local uh, ordinances and and laws. That is, namely, dealing with the black-tailed prairie dog issue in the front range uh, on uh, across the front range of Colorado, because that has my success in my consulting company largely stemmed from me and Kelly, my wife. Being willing to wade into the fray of that public nightmare that 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 animal activists, prairie dog activists created uh, in the on the Front Range of Colorado. So here's what's Here's what happened. So we're going to go back to the 1990s, mid to late 1990s. Remember mid to late, so mid 1990s is when I got out of the uh, the military, moved to Colorado to finish my wildlife degree. So while at mid 90s, while I'm finishing my degree and I am going up into the mountains during this, so I'm in college working my ass off at three different jobs during school, well, you know, September through, you know, May or whatever, but during the summer, I'm working on the Upper Eagle River Elk Study where I got, you know, started cutting my teeth on the elk stuff that I do. I was up in the mountains, all right, so I was away from the front range, and I really wasn't paying t- attention to what was going on in the front range, but during that period of time, there was a lot of rain, okay, the the, the state was getting a lot of rain. I remember living in the tent those summers, just getting pounded, just pounded with, with rain. What that means is there was a lot of grass growing, all right, so on the front range of Colorado, when I say the, the front range of Colorado didn't look like what it looks like now... Back in the 90s, Fort Collins was a a small college town and it was distinct and separate from Loveland, which was a a decent-sized town, which was distinct and separate from Longmont which was distinct and separate from, you know, the Denver, like every one of these little towns was, it, it was its own little town with massive amounts of agriculture surrounding those towns. You literally could get on I-25 at any moment. And, the, and I'm talking to you folks that are intimate about the Front Range of Colorado right now. Some of you in other states have no idea what I'm talking about as far as the town goes, but um, I could go from Fort Collins to Trinidad and like just sail. Like if i if i wasn't in rush hour i could just 65 75 85 miles an hour just just hit the pedal down and go one end of the state to the other and not have a problem in the world okay obviously anybody that lives in the front range of Colorado now knows that ain't the case it's it looks it looks like southern california as far as just the the, the subdivision spread it's just one big conglomeration of housing and commercial development now well, the, the reason why I say that is because in the 1990s, again, it was, small, it was a small-town feel, small cities, small-town feel with a bunch of agriculture around it. But development was rapidly expanding. And the demand for real estate development was growing immensely. When you have a lot of rain, you grow a lot of vegetation. When you grow a lot of vegetation, those farmers that have row crops... All right, they're going to be growing their row crops. They're going to be doing just fine. They, they just move, they just crank right along and just grow their row crops. When you're running cattle, if you're growing a lot of grass and your cattle are fat and happy and you're making money off of your cattle, sometimes your limiting factors and sometimes the, the problems that you, that you run into are less of, of a, of a, of an issue. And meaning in, during this time, there were populations of black-tailed prairie dogs scattered across the front range of Colorado, down from the foothills out to I-25. That's that's what I'm going to call the front range, all right? I-25 east, I'm, I'm just going to disregard that for the moment. The relevant discussion was from I-25, that highway that runs north-south along the the front range of Colorado, all the way up to the foothills, okay? Well, scattered across from Denver Metro up to Fort Collins east, or west of I-25, east of the foothills, there were populations of black-tailed prairie dogs scattered across through there. Now, in Colorado, black-tailed prairie dog is is listed as a dual species. They're listed as a non-game, or excuse me, they're listed as a um, destructive rodent pest, which under Department of Ag classification means you can do a whole bunch of different stuff with them. But they're also listed under, uh, I think, a game species under Colorado law as well under the the uh, CPW, so they're regulated, you know, shooting, hunting, that type of stuff, and they do in the agency regulates some other stuff, but it's 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 managed both by the CPW as well as Department of Ag, so it's got a dual classification there. So during this time, you've got blacktail prairie dogs that are. Have their populations are scattered across this this area I'm talking about, and because of the vegetation, because of the rain, those colonies are expanding. They're doing very very well. When you have a lot of grass and the cattle are doing well, a lot of the the ranchers really don't care about controlling prairie dogs anymore because they, it's not a real big competing interest. They, it it's, it kind of get, gets to the point where it becomes irrelevant. So we've got two things where you got the the you've got ranchers in that area that are really not doing a significant amount of control of prairie dogs you have prairie dogs that are increasing their footprint on the landscape at the same time you have an increasing footprint on the the demand for developing properties so what you end up having is a lot of these ranchers, a lot of these farmers that are getting older, they want to retire or their families want to sell or whatever. All of a sudden you start having farm; these farm families are starting to sell off chunks of their real estate to housing development or to a commercial development or whatever. Well, at the time, a commercial developer would come in and maybe... The rancher's not going to get, or the farmer's not going to give up their great ag ground. They're not going to give up their most productive you know, ranching ground. They're going to give up some of their crappy ground or some of the ground that might have prairie dogs or whatever else on it. So they sell that chunk of ground. A realtor comes in or a developer comes in. And at the time, there were really no laws to regulate what happened with the prairie dogs that were on that landscape. Again, because they were listed as a destructive rodent pest from an agriculture standpoint, and these are agriculture lands, a lot of developers at the time would just come in and just bulldoze the freaking thing flat. Just just bulldoze right through them. Or they'd just go out there and poison them or whatever. they just, just bulldoze right through them, literally and figuratively, all right? Well, at the same time, because these prairie dogs are expanding their footprint and they're in more and more and more and more places, you have animal activists, especially when we start talking about, you look around the Boulder area, City of Boulder, Boulder County. That's always been... Um, People in Colorado affectionately call it the People's Republic of Boulder. Why? It, it very much similar, very much mir- mirrors you know you know your kind of your your color your excuse me California politics where very left leaning, uh, I left politically left ideologically, uh, environmental, ecologically focused, animal rights. Uh, the, the, that area of the Front Range has always had that value set. It, it, it you know it attracts those type of people and those type of people move there and so the the general populace that drives the political discussion in those areas very left-leaning very environmental friendly very animal rights friendly all right so there's always been a component of animal activists on the landscape but at this at this point when you start getting in the late 90s because of the development going gangbusters and because these activists are watching these prairie dog colonies getting bulldozed and bulldozed and bulldozed, they start getting more and more and more and more and more upset, all right? And so, they start stirring up public discussion, public dialogue, public discourse. They're going to, now again, because because of development is regulated by cities and counties, whether it's a city... Uh, city council or county commission the uh, planning boards or whatever there's a public input process and so the animal activists started going to these these public processes and really screaming bloody murder about what was happening with the, with the prairie dog some people cared some people didn't but what they started to see was in the area around city of boulder boulder county because that was the general proclivity of the people that live in that area to be more left-leaning, environmentally friendly, anti-hunting, or, or not anti-hunting, animal activists, blah, 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 they knew that they had a sympathetic ear within the city council, they they knew that they had a sympathetic ear within the, the county commissioners, and so eventually, and again, I'm giving you broad, broad brushes here, they created enough of a, 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 an uproar that, you know, something needs to change. We, we can't, Development in the front range in these communities is insensitive to wildlife. It's insensitive to the species of critter, even though it's listed as a destructive rodent pest. It's also a game species. is also a wildlife species that's managed by the, the the CPW. We need to have more accountability for developers, not the landowners, but for developers. There needs to be more accountability. There needs to be a, a better land ethic. There needs to be there needs to be laws that force developers. If you want to develop a chunk of real estate and it has prairie dogs on it, you need there needs to be laws to, to direct what those developers have to do to ethically respond to the fact that there's an, a, a wildlife a wildlife species, a population of wildlife in that property that needs to be addressed, okay? I'm, there's so much. This okay, we're talking about 20 some years. So, in the around the city of Boulder, Boulder County, they because of the public outcry, because of the public relations stuff that they were doing, the activists, the prairie dog activists that that were pissed that loved prairie dogs and were pissed off at developers they got themselves into a position where they were at the table to draft legislation, local legislation, local ordinances, county ordinances, to dictate what was going to happen with Prairie Dogs in the face of development. And as you can imagine, it wasn't a baby step. In a direction of can we can we try to do a little bit to no when they were invited to the table and when they when they were able to to be at the table to draft these 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 city ordinances and these county ordinances what it went from it went from a, a developer could do whatever the hell they wanted to to the far side of the pendulum and and think about a pendulum swinging back and forth okay. To the left, to the right, to the left, to the right. On the right-hand side, just imagine uh, developers who don't give two shits about prairie dogs and they just want to bulldoze them under the ground. On the left side of that pendulum, as that pendulum swings, maybe that's where the general public says, no, we want you to, to care about prairie dogs. We want you to do something uh, ethically responsible for these animals before you just, do, you know, you can't just bulldoze them under the ground. You got to do something, okay? Well, the animal activists grab that pendulum Stopped it and then just shoved it as far up and high to the left as they possibly can, and just artificially prop this thing up. And what their what their ordinances were essentially broad strokes was no death of prairie dogs by the hand of man. No more prairie dogs shall die at the hand of man. Now, not not only now landowners notwithstanding landowners can if if you're a landowner a private landowner agriculture if you need to protect your property and whatever sure you you can still do what you want to do but if we're talking about a commercial property or a residential property or something like that if you're a developer and you want to come in oh hell no not only in in, in this again remember the animal activists weren't they just this affected everyone from the cities themselves and their open spaces because at the same time in colorado more and more communities because those communities are growing so fast. There was talk where they did not want, like, for instance, Loveland and, Co- and Fort Collins. The development was rapidly filling in between those two cities and, and both cities said, we don't want our cities to become one big conglomeration city. So some of these city city councils, county governance governments, and that type of stuff started saying, okay, we need open space. We need to, to set it. We need to purchase ground and set that ground aside as just open space just at the least to keep our municipalities apart just to keep the 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 general flavor and the feel of the community uh intact to maintain some you know image of in the community that the feel of agriculture on the landscape so we have development going up and we have more and more of these local municipalities and county government governments buying up and preserving preserving open space lands and at the same time now that they have open space lands the the city government or the county government needs to come up with a management plan for these these now new city-owned or county-owned open space areas all right so the activists have inserted themselves into this discussion at this time and now they've got a seat at the table to direct what ordinances and what laws these communities are going to abide by as far as how to deal with prairie dogs and at the time, they didn't even carve out exceptions for city, count, city governments or county governments. It was just a blanket, essentially. No prairie dog dies at the hand of man. And quite honestly, you can't even go in and disrupt a, a prairie dog burrow, a mound, or any, like, without going through massive hoops. Well, what were those massive hoops? The activists essentially said, if you want to develop a piece of ground that has prairie dogs on it, or if you want to manage a piece of ground that has prairie dogs on it, you want to reduce or eliminate prairie dogs from this piece of ground, what do you need to do? You need to trap every single one of those prairie dogs alive, humanely, pick them up, and then move them and establish them to another area where they can live their life happy-go-lucky and never have a problem again it's called a translocation not unlike what we're deal what you what the wolf folks have been doing up in yellowstone area and then what colorado wants to do a translocation we're going to move them from one spot we're going to bring them in and we're going to st- establish them somewhere else now a reintroduction we're talking semantics but we're talking about picking animals up moving them and establishing them in a, nev- a different area okay so the law said, no. essentially, no death by the hand of man. In a, at, at, at first, it only impacted the developers. So city governments didn't care, the county governments didn't care, and the general public didn't care. Well, of course, if you're going to develop a piece of ground and you're going to end up making millions off this, this, this development, well, of course, you should do the right thing, quote-unquote, air quotes, the right thing, and move these prairie dogs out of harm's way. And and initially, that started off just fine, because some of these open space areas around City of Boulder and, and in Boulder County, they had open space areas, and the activists were involved with some of the discussions regarding the management of some of these open space areas, and some of the people in the open space dialogue said, we need to leave areas available for prairie dog conservation. Again, at... Keep in mind, simultaneously, there's more and more buildup of this prairie dog ad- advocacy and activism movement. Okay? And so there's more and more data coming out. There's more and more science coming out about blacktail prairie dogs and their community and their dialogue and their, their vocalizations, communication, behavior, etc., etc., etc. Seeing any parallels with the wolf issue? Okay. So keep going with me. So the activism is going up. The, the prairie dog ac- advocates... And activists are ramping up. The, the city and county governments are saying, oh, we're going to manage some of our open space ground for black prairie dog conservation in and around some of these areas. And then we have ordinances to, to say, if you're going to develop a piece of ground, you have to do a live, wild-to-wild, what's wild, what they call a live, wild-to-wild, wild. so pick them out of the wild, put them back in the wild, relocation or translocation. Well, these county governments and city governments that had this open space started to make some of that ground open for the developments that were happening in in their, their communities. So a developer wanted to develop this piece of ground. There was prairie dogs on it, but the county or the city had open space, and that open space was going to be set aside for prairie dog conservation. So great, what a, what a match made in heaven. We'll take the prairie dogs out of this development footprint, and we'll put them over here in the open space, and then they can sing kumbaya and live happily ever after enter in this era of animal activists now getting involved with direct wildlife management. They're going out there they're trapping, they're doing the translocations All right, so they get to go play with prairie dogs everybody's all happy obviously except the developer because that's going to cost them an arm and a leg but the other thing that we started seeing with the developers was, again the, the animal activists they don't care about development and quite honestly they don't like the development they don't want the development because that development is displacing a population, an already existing population of prairie dogs. Who gives a shit about development? There, you know, urban sprawl and and ecological footprint of humans, blah 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 blah. All the negatives of uh, people and blah blah blah. So they don't give a crap about development. And quite honestly, they want to be a pro. <laughs> quite, quite honestly, they want to be a problem development. All right. So some of the ordinances and laws that were passed the way they were written and then especially the way they were interpreted and way they were enforced were absolutely 100% punitive and it almost seemed vindictive i mean it was just absolute punitive on those people that valued development you're going to you, a we don't like you b we don't want you to succeed See if you're going to try to succeed and you're still going to develop this piece of ground, we're going to make it as painful and costly to you as possible. And quite honestly, sometimes some of the activists, they would get involved with this and they start a progress and and they would just, just drag the whole system out, like months and months and months and months and months and months to where finally some developments just threw their hands up and they're like, okay, we can't do this. Well, that's a win for the activists, all right? Again, I'm doing massive broad strokes here. So you can see, I hope you're paying attention to some of the parallels. So they did not, they hated development. They hated developers because, again, the developers were the ones that were killing prairie dogs ruthlessly and indiscriminately. All right. So they hated developers. They did not want to see any more development and they wanted to make sure the prairie dogs were taken care of. So it was this live wild wild relocation, translocation type of, of a deal. Well, you start rolling into the beginning of 2000s. Suddenly, open space areas are starting to become full there's no the the prairie dogs have expanded the the there's been so many relocation efforts to where you're moving prairie dogs into these open space areas to where now some of the the county manager open space managers city city open space managers were saying um guys we're we're getting to the point where we're saturated on our prairie dogs because the prairie dogs didn't stop breeding the, the prairie dogs are going to reproduce and they're going to continue to spread across the landscape anyway. And then you're bringing more prairie dogs in to these open space areas. Keep bring, Suddenly now there becomes this limiting factor to where, oh shit, our policies, our laws, because again, remember some of the, at the time, some of these laws also pertained to the city and county governments. They couldn't go in and control so now all of a sudden the city and county governments and their open space departments are, are starting to feel the pain of these policies that have been put in place. Some municipalities, now at the same, sorry, broad strokes. As that idea took hold in the city of Boulder, Boulder County, it start, the activists didn't stop. They went to Louisville, Superior, Lafayette, Broomfield, Every community, especially those in Boulder County, every community that was, they just started to just just expand their footprint across the Front Range, trying to adopt these ordinances and these laws to basically shut down prairie dog mortality at the hand of man, all right? Now, they pushed it all the way up into Longmont. They never really got a foothold in Loveland. They never really got a foothold in um for Collins but again now you're talking about Larimer County versus Boulder County you start you start to have a different value set on the landscape of the general populace of those counties and those communities Longmont it it was in Boulder County and you had some of those people that were that that lean that way but not overly egregiously so Broomfield you, you start getting down to Broomfield, and man, they adopted those. You get North Denver communities, and man, they adopted some of those those ordinances and those laws. But as soon as you, they tried putting it down in Castle Rock, they tried putting those same laws and ordinances in Colorado Springs, didn't take hold. They tried doing, you know, here we can jump I, I-25, you know, Greeley and some of that. It didn't take hold in those communities where there was still an agriculture and a, and a consumptive-use wildlife type of uh, value set in the landscape. But it really took hold in that Boulder County, North Denver, Adams County type of, of area. So it was a pretty sizable footprint. This is, again, where all the development is happening. But now, now the city and county governments are and the people are starting to feel the pain of it because now people that were in residential areas that were up against these open spaces, all of a sudden now prairie dogs are in the open space and now prairie dogs are in their backyards and prairie dogs are in their you know their window wells and their prairie dogs are in their front yard i mean now there's prairie dogs in places where people the average citizen when they voted when the city council proposed this or the county government proposed we're going to you know at a county commission meeting or a city council meeting we're going to you know entertain this 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 new law about governing prairie dogs a lot of the public just either didn't pay attention to it Or they voted for it because... Or they supported it because, well, it's just a neat idea. Never thinking that they were going to be impacted by it. Well, here you go. Fast forward over time. Now, all of a sudden, the open spaces are... They're they're having problems with prairie dogs. You're getting plague outbreaks. You got other wildlife and disease issues. You got uh, prairie dogs in people's backyards. You have development now that is starting to get shut down because they don't have a way to deal with this issue. So, all of a sudden, now what started off as a good idea and the activists got their foothold, they went to a sympathetic community and they were able to put this no prairie dog dies at the hand of man idea on the, on the, 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 basically the books as far as what the laws governing that area are. Now there's pain associated. Well, enter in Chris Rowe and Chris and Kelly Rowe. At the beginning of 2000s, we entered the, you know, Chris and Kelly entered the chat. Basically at the time, the city and county governments were asking the CPW for assistance. They're like, what, like, how do we do this? Like, what do we do? Is there, I mean, like, what, what do you guys recommend? Can you, can you come to us? Because again, the animal activists are running the bulk of the public dialogue. But the agency folks, no, the, the agency those of you that are upset that the agency is on a gag order right now because of, uh, with the wolf issue, that, again, I said it last time, and I'm, I mean this sincerely, that's nothing new. That's that's nothing new for Colorado. Back in the day, that the agency was largely, you know, mum on the prairie dog issue. They would provide local, a little bit here and there and that, but from a top-down agency perspective and, and putting, you know, support from an agency to help some of these local communities, no. It was really largely non-existent. So, as we started getting our, foot, you know, we started our business. We were starting to get out there, blah, 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 blah. We were asked to, if we would get involved with the prey dog issue. And knowing, at the time, how controversial it was. And, I mean, it was, man, there's, there's a, there's a, yeah. how do I want to wrap this? Because there's so many different parallel things going on at the time. Um, because at this time, this, the, there's, there's now murmur, chitter chatter out there that, these activists, National Wildlife Federation specifically is concerned about the black-tailed prairie dog across its range across the, the, the United States and Canada and Mexico and there's chitter-chatter that, that it might get petitioned on the ESA uh, under Endangered Species Act, either as as endangered or threatened or a species, you know, a, a candidate species, you know, species for consideration essentially um, warranted but precluded, blah, blah, blah. There's also, there's also, there's all sorts of different um, levels there that they could be listed or addressed under the ESA. You have landowners that are watching what's going on with these prairie dog ordinances, and they're watching what the animal activist community is doing, and they're watching what's, because again, the, these conversations about the potential listing of black prairie dogs we're starting to move into early in early and mid2000s okay so this conversation is starting to increase 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 there's a there's an absolute real tangible effect going on locally in the Boulder County city of Boulder area but nationally because of National Wildlife Federation there's this growing discussion within the agriculture community hearing these these and and the CPW hearing that oh, There are activist groups that are wanting to petition the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to list these species. So, as you can imagine, the anti-prairie dog people are getting more and more pissed off and more and more concerned about what might be happening with these activist groups. The activist groups have already had a taste of success. They've already had an impact on local state laws, or excuse me, not state, local laws uh, in, in their communities. They're ramping up. Meanwhile, now, the community is, the, the general public is squarely in the middle of it de- trying to deal with the aftermath. We stepped into the, the arena knowing darn well we were either going to piss off landowners, like legitimately piss off landowners. We had an opportunity, real, as just a quick aside, to just, this, this one, we were young and dumb at the time and we just didn't even realize how bad this was we had Kelly, my wife, was friends, college friend, college, f- had a friend from college who was dating a guy in Los Animas County down towards Trinidad, and, and they owned a 20 or 30,000 acre ranch uh, just north of Trinidad. And we got hooked up and they led us to come out there and pronghorn hunt, archery pronghorn hunt on the ranch. We were the only ones that had access to the ranch. It was freaking heaven on earth. Like when I say pronghorn hunting, like anybody in Colorado knows, Lost Animas County and Huerofinell County in Southern Colorado are just phenomenal for just giant pronghorn. But again, what did I say back in the 90s? We had all this grass, so much rain, so much rain, so much rain. Like horn growth and body condition on these, these, we were passing up 15 plus inch pronghorn because there's a 17 inch pronghorn over there with like, just like, freaking 8, 9 inch cutters, like just these just world class freaking gargantuan goats running around and we were having a time of our life now again, meanwhile, the prairie dog thing is, is ramping up, National Wildlife Federation is, is chitter-chattering about, you know, threatening to sue, blah 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 there was talk about doing money and incentives to where the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service would provide money to ranches that wanted to proactively manage for prairie dog colonies and, and basically get paid to conserve prairie dogs on their property. And us being young and dumb, you know, consultants, we were thinking we were being friends to the ranch and we were saying, dude, we, we, in passing, like in passing, we didn't even put together a formal proposal or anything. In passing, we said, you know, Fish and Wildlife Service is coming up with this program where you can get paid for prairie dogs if you want. We can sit down. We can talk about... Get the fuck... Up, excuse me. They get the freaking hell off our ranch. What? Not only are we not going to entertain this bullshit with prairie dogs. We're not going to entertain and get in bed with fish and wildlife. We're not going to... And anybody that even thinks like that has no business here. Get the freaking hell out. We might as well have been just escorted to the frickin' front gate and kicked out on our ass because we mentioned there was a possibility of conserving prairie dogs and guinea pigs. Get the frickin' hell out. Don't ever come back. Like, it was that bad. Like, that bad. To where, when we were asked to get involved with prairie dogs, like, we get involved with prairie dogs, it literally could end up defining where we work. And in many ways, it, it kind of did for a while. Because once we entered that fray, there was going to be some landowners and private landowners who were like, we don't want anything to do with you because all you want to do is play over in the world with the animal activists. That's not what we did. Because what we did is we, we found out, we, we figured out, okay, listen, I, I jumped ahead. So anyway, we decided to get in, involved with, with this the politics of it. And we start, we, we come up with a program by which we can kind of meet the desires of what the public thought they were getting into and what the public wanted, and we gave the cities and counties a, a, a management tool that they could utilize, and then we offered a solution for developers whereby, okay, you're not going to just bulldoze the prairie dogs out of the ground. You're not just going to go you know, indiscriminately poison them or, or gas them in the burrows. What we can do is we'll trap them, we'll euthanize them humanely, we'll put them on ice, we'll instantly freeze them, wrap the, you know, put them in a Ziploc bag, you know, a freezer bag, we'll instantly, you know, freeze them solid, and then we can take that carcass and we can take it up and we can use it at the Rocky Mountain Raptor Program or the Birds of Prey Foundation, which is, both, both of these are places where if you have an injured hawk or an injured eagle or an injured owl, They will take it in, rehabilitate it, send it back out into the wild, and for those animals that are not able to be turned back in the wild, if they can use them for education, they do. Other times they have to euthanize them, but this was a place where hawks and eagles that were being injured were being taken for rehab. Well, they need food. Prairie dogs and scientific data shows that prairie dogs are really good food for hawks and eagles. Um, so we provided a solution whereby we could provide an ecologically an ethical ethically an ethical solution to the management of prairie dogs on private lands that were slated for development. So when we showed up at the city councils and the, the county commissions, and those city councils and county commissions started adopting this as an alternative to the wild live wild wild relocation effort. Of course, the anim- animal activists lost their ever-loving shit. They lost their minds because, again, their goal, their value set was no prairie dog dies at the hand of man, not purposefully. We come in and we're like, no, prairie dogs are going to die at the hand of man, but we're going to do it in an ethical and environmentally and ecologically responsible manner. Well, City councils and, and uh, county commissioners, there was people that they did surveys and it came back overwhelmingly. 80 some plus percent of the population really loved our solution to the problem. They were like, nope, that makes sense. We can manage the, pra- the prairie dogs because again, the prairie dogs are still breeding. Pra- prairie dogs are still spreading. They're spreading everywhere. And as development is moving, as development is increasing across the landscape in this like checkerboard type of of. Uh, scenario there are little literally l- chunks of real estate that become landlocked in the middle of town in the middle of housing developments that it's just a vacant lot it's part of a broader uh, subdivision future like phase 10 of a, a development but right now it's a just a vacant lot and there's prairie dogs in the middle of that vacant lot and the, and the, the vacant lot is isolated it's in the middle of of target shopping centers home depots and and apartment buildings and and you know townhomes et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. so now what are you going to do with them like what what are you going to do with them when it when it's, when it's time to develop right so anyway the general public supports the compromise the cities and counties all of a sudden realize ah now we have a way that we can we can prioritize number one if you if if you're dealing with a development the, the first option is a live wild wild relocation. And if you can do that, you have to do that, developer. But if you cannot do that and you do you show due diligence and you try to do that and there's no site available, the next best option is what we, what Kelly and I trademarked as a humane removal to where we come in and trap and you know blah blah blah. blah. That was number two. After all that is done and there, if you still need to do something, then you could go do some set level of, of lethal control. Landowners loved it. The general public loved it. The developers loved it. Begrudgingly loved it. The animal activists lost their shit. All right? Because they were finally put into check and they weren't allowed to continue to run away and control what prairie dog management looked like on the landscape within these municipalities and county government, in these county uh, areas. Which brings me to this entire time, because the activists were opposing it, a development proposal would hit the ground. It would impact prairie dogs. The developer would put together a plan, and they would go through the, you know, put together a plan. They would consult with us, and we would do due diligence to try to find a relocation site. Couldn't find one. We would move forward on the, the phase two, the, the, the second best option, if you will. And, of course, the activists would freaking throw a fit pitch a fit. They go straight to the, the planning department and they would, they would try to just literally, whether it was picketing, whether it was protests, whether they would try to pick apart some legal thing, or they just go straight to the, the city council or the county commissioners and complain. There were many times where the developer was like, listen, we just got pulled in. We're, we're going to be pulled in front of a public hearing now on such and such. What the hell do we do? And we we're like, no problem. We'll be there. And we would show up as biologists and as the people that are are articulated and we were the ones that stood across from the activists and justified what was going on so we we in public settings in a legal city councils county government still legal setting we're sitting there going through the public process with the hardest of hard animal activists going toe-to-toe arguing not only value sets, but the the law. Here's what the law says. Here's what you guys do. Here's, but you know, back and forth between us and the activists. City at the time, city councils and the county commissioners loved us because it. We took the heat. They they didn't have to. They didn't have to interject their opinions. All they had to do was listen to the quote unquote experts. That was the animal activists and row Ecological Services. And Eco and Roe Ecological Services were the most. Re, they were qualified biologists at the time. We were certified wildlife biologists. We were qualified wildlife biologists. We were concurrent with what the, even the CPAW was even saying in some of these areas. We were within the bounds of the law, and we were there articulating science and putting science and ethics on the on the landscape. They just they would rule in quote unquote our favor and be like, yeah, we're going to go with Roe ecological services recommendation. We're going to go ahead with this and, and move forward. Of course, they did. The animal activists did not get what they wanted. So guess who became public enemy number one? like, row ecological services in their mind were just devil, just Satan incarnate. Which then come, as you go down the over time, now the cities and counties are using this compromised position. Because all the open space is chock full of prairie dogs. Every available stick of ground is chock full of prairie dogs. To where now the animal activists, the only hope that they have to ensure that no prairie dog dies at the hand of man is to pick and choose their battles and go after those 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 large public companies that have massively deep pockets. And so what they would do, they knew they didn't have a mechanism within the law to force a wild-to-wild relocation. But what they did have is public pressure. And so they would do public pressure campaigns picketing protesting everything else to these big large companies and these big projects saying listen you're big enough this project is tens and tens or if not hundreds of millions of dollars your pocketbooks are deep enough you need to go buy purchase fee title you need to go buy land that does not have prairie dogs on it so that way you can relocate the prairie dogs from this parcel to your other parcel. So you need to start buying purchasing land. Again, now, some of these companies, they, they don't, the, the, the headshed, the the managing partners don't live in Colorado. They don't know anything about all this type of stuff. So what do they do? They hired us. We go in there. And now we are sitting, in, and I vividly remember, like with HSUS a couple of times. One of them, I think the one of the big ones discussion was when the, um, was it the VA hospital? I think it was a V, I think I'm pretty sure it was a VA hospital, Denver, the new VA hospital. Sitting I mean, literally, HSUS. As many as as people hate HSUS, again, keep in mind. Oh man, I'm jumping ahead. Again, broad strokes. So at the t- so at this time, sorry, during this concurrent, as as the pendulum now, again. The, the activists pushed that pendulum, the, the ball of that pendulum, as far up and hard to the left as they could possibly go, but it was unsup- it, it, it only was propped up by people not knowing the cost of what was going to occur. Eventually, the public started to crumble. They, the activists could not keep that pendulum pushed that far left, and so the pendulum started crashing back towards the center a little bit through the bulk of, of when we were, we were active. Now, at the same time, this is when NWF, National Wildlife Federation, finally did say, nope, we're going to petition the U.S. Fish and Wildlife to list them uh, on the endangered species. Okay, so now we get, I get pulled in with, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of things that happen there. I That's when I got pulled into the statewide uh, working group on the Species Conservation Working Group, trying to figure out how to avoid a listing, all right? And, again, because that listing was a threat over the, that sort of Damocles over everybody's head, that's where these big companies that had lots of money they are like, oh shit, you know, do we like, how, how do we navigate this do we need to go by, this is where yours truly comes in and sitting across the table from folks like HSUS sitting at the table with NWF sitting at the table with a lot of the local prairie dog activists, because again HSU is there, I guess I didn't say again shouldn't say again, HSUS, because, because prairie dog activism was growing so, because prairie dog activism grew and it was doing incredible things on the landscape. And then, uh, because of us, it started to take a, like take a hit and take a step back and and lose momentum. HSUS came in and bought up, I know at least one, maybe two of the local groups and, and pulled those local groups into the fold of HSUS. With, a, with the whole point, HSUS is going to use the money behind the national organization to prop up some of the advocacy and activism going on in Colorado. Right? All this is happening, All the, but yours truly is sitting there in these meetings, discussing these things with the activists and uh, listening to what they want, how they think, what their value sets are, some of them are, are This is, and this is what we're going to get to here in a minute. People need to understand, these are not stupid people. They're not stupid people. They're very smart. They just have a wildly different value set than we do. And so sometimes they would come to the table and they would bring up a point. They would make a point that we would have, from an uh, from intellectual, inte- intellectual integrity standpoint, we would have to agree with, we're like, no, you're, you're right. In this case, in this case, this here, this, that, you know, we would have to, we we would agree. You're right. No, you, you, your position here on this point is valid and is something that will be addressed. Other times though, they were just batshit crazy. Like, okay, you're, you're asking for things that are just, that's, that's ridiculous. Not only does it not make any biological sense, it doesn't even make it, there's, there's not an ounce of like. There's nothing in law. There's nothing in ordinances. There's nothing even in ecological papers to say. Like, your position and your value and what you're saying on the land isn't supported anywhere. It's just this freaking batshit idea that came out of left field. No, we're not. We'll go to battle intellectually with you on that. Now, keep in mind, through this whole time, and this is why, for a long time, Kelly and I, we have maintained friends within the agency, CPW. But for many, many years, we would already always argue, you're not a friend with the agency. The agency is the agency with its own politics, it's its own it's a, it's its own organic living, breathing entity. You can't be friends with the agency. And many times through this whole process, Chris and Kelly Rowe were at odds with the agency it's literally the reason why we published one of our 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 papers because the at the time again remember agency didn't give two rips about prairie dog management really on the front range and then when this uh effort by national wildlife federation to sue and and get them listed across prairie dogs listed across colorado and and all the other you know from canada to mexico The agency basically said, you know what, anything east of or excuse me, anything west of I-25 is irrelevant. We don't care about that chunk of the population. Because from an ecological recovery standpoint and, and a, a long-term conservation of species standpoint, that chunk of real estate is irrelevant because it's gonna be developed, it's impacted by humans, doesn't have all the, the ecological processes you know going on with it, blah, 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 blah. So it was carved out of consideration. Meanwhile, everything east of, Colorado, uh, of I-25, that was all part of a larger ecological plant. So when that part, it, it, it overlaps here, but generally speaking, so during a part of that conversation was, all of a sudden, the, the agency at this time was all over the place. At one point, so you always had to have a permit. If you're going to move wild animals from one place to another, you have to have a permit from the state to do so, the CPW. So the state always regulated Live wild wild relocation but in some cases they were very very stringent depending on who it was or who the game warden was and who the biologist was at the time or the area manager was at the time some of these were very very stringent and and they had to meet ecological like the soils had to be right the vegetation had to be right the the land the size of the area had to be right like the long-term concept like all the check all the boxes need to be checked on to do an ecologically responsible movement then there were other years and other people and other places where they were like, I don't give a shit. Put them wherever you want. I'll I'll sign off on it. It's like, what the frickin... Like, there's no rhyme or reason here. And so some of these places, and this goes to what's going to come up here, what I'm going to talk about with well, the wolves here in a minute. Some of the relocations were ecologically viable. And, and you could maybe even articulate in some way ecologically significant of these prairie dog relocations, translocations. But there were other ones that were absolutely wildly batshit crazy. Like we're going to move prairie dogs, and I think this was one uh, with the uh, uh, one of them with the um, the the VA hospital. They wanted to move prairie dogs to the like literally the foothills, the like mule deer, like slope, like thirty percent plus slope mule deer habitat. No, we're going to move. We're going to move the prairie dogs over to the west side of Denver, off of Ken Carl. Uh, up against the foothills, it's like, what the freaking hell? You that the soils aren't right, the vegetation isn't right, the, the slope isn't right, like that. Nothing about that is right. Well, it, well, it, it's a place where we can put them, and at least they have a chance. Meanwhile, there was already somebody already tried to do a relocation in that place before, utterly failed, hundred percent failure, like a hundred percent of the prairie dogs. Left, scattered, didn't, they were not retained on site, and they basically got mowed down by predators, or they just got, they were killed on uh, E4, or uh, uh, C470. Like, just, it, it was disastrous. But no, 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 we're going to do it again. We're going to do it again. We're going to do it again. We'll put them back there, put them back there, put them back there, put them back there, okay? This is going to come up, and again, here in a second. So anyway, we were many times at odds with individual agency personnel and with the agency at times because it was the north northeast region at times was was making some of the exceptions where you can do whatever you want you can re- relocate them anywhere you want we'll just sign off on it and then all of a sudden it became this oh no no no! if you even want to touch a prairie dog you have to have a permit and we got to go through this long so our our humane removals now needed a permit which we advocated for and then all of a sudden no we doesn't i mean it was the agency was schizophrenic when it came to prairie dog management on the on the front range, now, granted, they were going through growing pains. This is what I did not appreciate at the time as being a younger, cockier kid, and I, and I'll own it. I was wrong ish back in the day. We would have still still would have, would have would have pushed back, but I might have been a little bit more uh, sensitive to the internal dynamics of what was going on in the agency at the time. But we, it, it got bad, like. We We had they like, got bad, like pushing back on the agency and, and and professional battles, if you will, trying to bring some semblance of common sense and ecological uh, responsibility to this entire program of what was put in place by literally a, a handful of animal activists back in the day. So when I say I've sat like for 20 some years, I have lived in the world created by animal activists. When animal activists are given the keys, no, to keep to keep the analogies, concre- you know, flowing. When when they're when they're the captain of the ship, man the only thing that is going to keep, that's going to rein them in is, number one, the public is going to have to start to feel the pain of the programs that they put in place. When the public and, and or, and when I say the public, I we can say the general public as well as the public as in the, the, the governing body of the public, whether it's city councils, city planning boards, county commissioners, county planning boards, etc., people start to actually feel the pain of the actual programs that were implemented. Once that happens, then you can actually have some of those city councils, some of those county governments say, all right, we need to rein some of these things in. We need to change some of these things. We we need to throttle back a little bit. We need to put additional either restrictions on some of the activist activities, or we need to offer different avenues. There needs to be a compromise. That's the only thing that that stops animal activists when they're given control over setting public policy, especially law. You give them an inch and you're going to struggle to rein them in six miles from now. And I'm not saying that because I just want to be, you know, angry or vindictive or or disrespectful to the animal activists. Good on them. Like, seriously, good on them. They have a value set. I don't agree with it, but they have a value set. Someone hikes them, you know, passes them the ball. They catch the ball... Are, are do you think they're just going to self regulate and say okay well I'm just I'm only going to run the ball to get it to a you know a first down that's it and then then I'm going to I'm going to fall over uh oh you got me and I'll set the ball down and I'll be like thanks guys I appreciate playing the game or do you think someone's going to pe- pitch them the ball and they're going to freaking run for a touchdown like they're going to go they're going to go and if they've got momentum if they've got skill and if they've got the 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 public behind them they're they're, they're going to bowl down they're going to bowl over and plow through everyone in their path until they get what they want and and for the and for the prairie dog deal and i believe this to be true with the wolf advocates no death by the hand of man especially those blankety blank blank and blank 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 and blank and evil developers cuz we hate the because the developers were the ones that were just Waylaying, just unethical, disgusting, disrespectful, uh, just, just, just waylaying prairie dogs in the most heinous method- way possible, destroying thousands and thousands of prairie dogs. You can listen to the, the activists. Developers were the biggest evil on the landscape, and not only did they want to shut some of the development down, and while while protecting prairie dogs but they wanted to make sure that those policies were going to be as most vindictive and costly as possible. Like, they're going to exact their revenge on developers for all the sins of the previous developers that went before. I've lived this. I've lived this. And what I'm watching now with the Wolf issue is... It's absolutely the exact same thing. The problem is the level at which these guys now have a platform in which to play. We're not talking about a city council, a a tight, small community. We're not talking about even a county commission and a county area. We're talking about state and we're talking about state wildlife commission who is appointed by the governor the only regulating body over top of the wildlife commission who again i truly believe now is is driving this entire discussion the agency is going to do what the what the commission tells it to do and the agency is just going to try to survive i I'm, i i've got friend, like i said i talked about it before I, I love some of the guys that are involved with this right now and i i can't i don't even i i wouldn't trade no way No way would I want to even trade positions with them because their hands are tied. This commission is being stacked purposefully with values that are not in line with traditional North American model of wildlife conservation. It's being done so purposefully. And again, this commission is appointed by the governor. The only Person that's above the 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 commission is the governor and the state legislature. Like I said, with the prairie dog issue, the general public over time, sometime in the future, after living through the policies set forth by the animal activists, once the general public starts to feel the pain of the policies. Then the general public is going to speak up and ask, possibly speak up and ask for a change. At the local level with a prairie dog, it was easy because the the people in the community that were affected by the prairie dog lived in the community that actually made the decisions regarding the prairie dog. Meaning, the subdivision that had an open space in their backyard that was getting overrun by prairie dogs and there was plague, there was other issues... Prairie dogs were moving into their yards and ripping their yards up and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those people were directly affected by the prairie dog. They go right straight to their city council. They go straight to their county commissioners and they say, damn it, those are your, you know, it's on open space or whatever. We need a We need a solution. We need a change. Here's the problem with the wolf issue. The people voting for the wolves and the people that run the politics in Colorado are not the people. That are going to feel the pain of wolves on the landscape. They're they're not not for a very very long time. And I think the only pain that they might eventually feel is really if there's ever restrictions to public access and recreation, which there might be. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, even if the even if some of the people in some of these areas do start to feel a pain. I don't know if it's going to be enough to sway it. This is what makes me so, if you want to talk about Doomsday, this is what concerns me about this issue is because there is no effective mechanism in which to slow like I said before, the train has left the station and they're pouring the coals to it. They are they've got the throttle mashed to the floor. And this train is picking up speed. I I don't see, for a very long time, I don't see any equal or an opposite or greater and opposite force to work against that momentum. Only a new governor and a new legislature... Is going to be able to to slow this train down, and uh, again, like I said before, I think you're gonna you're gonna find yourself in court battles, and and we can see examples of it uh, right now. So um, if you listen to, if you look at what the plan says, no, if you even go back, goodness gracious, the reason why I say that I think ungulate management is done. They are in in charge now of ungulate management. I I don't even care about the wolf right now. Like, wolves are an ends... Again, this is what I hate about the progressive ideology. Whether you're on the right or the left, I don't care. If you're a progressive, I've got no use for you. If you believe ends justify the means, if you are willing to go out there and deceive people to get your way, um, I have no use for you. And... At this point, it's clear to me that wolves are only... Uh, wolves are a very strategic tool for a much bigger project. And I say that because um, the Wildlife Commission, if you listen to the, the on the 22nd, the, the, the last public comment meeting, if you will, they did add the language for geographic distribution. And that's one thing that I think, I mean, the, I will give the agency credit and I will give the commissioners, Blecka and, um, golly, why do I use a um, The secretary. Dang it, I apologize. I always forget her name, but Blecka especially. They did a damn good job of, of trying to stand the line, but they were just, they were just, Outnumbered, they're just outnumbered by votes. But so wolf recovery is going to be twofold in Colorado. It's going to be contingent on the number of wolves in the state. Which again, like I said, don't don't give two shits about what is in the plan. That one hundred and fifty number, that it's going to be way more than that. It, it'll it'll end up being way more than that. Um, and I am going to parallel. I am going to use a parallel example here in a second. They, it's not only going to be the number, but it's also going to be a geographic distribution. So it wolves need to have that minimum number, but wolves also need to be evenly distributed across <laughs> suitable, suitable habitat across the state. So even if you had 500 wolves in northwest part of the state, say you had 750 wolves in the, the northwest corner of, Quarter of the state, if there's not a pack of wolves, and quite honestly, I would argue probably more multiple packs of wolves in the Gunnison Valley or in southern Colorado or wherever. Well, they still haven't they still haven't met the need for or met the the threshold for recovery because they are not found across the 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 overall range uh, that suitable habitat that Colorado has. That to me being nebulous language is just ripe for abuse and it, it's strategic um, because they're going to do they're going to drop wolves off in a, a, a suitable area and those animals are going to pick up let's just say they pick up and move for whatever reason it, it, there's a gigantic area of suitable habitat but behaviorally, those animals pick up and move and they, they they disperse, let's say, 100 miles away. Let's just arbitrarily. And then that pack settles into that area and, and thrives and does well. You'll absolutely see a directive to go back in and release wolves right back smack dab where they were originally released. Because the activists are going to turn around and say, well, you, it's good habitat here. But, the, but those wolves just moved over to that spot because there was no other, they, they could, because there's no wolf pack over there. there. that That's good, you know, suitable habitat over there as well. But the original release site's still good. And so now that there's a wolf pack over in that area, that's fine. Release them back where you just released them because this is good habitat anyway. So the agency's going to come in and they're going to release wolves in that spot. And all of a sudden, we're going to watch those wolves. They're going to pick up. And let's just say they move in a different direction. They go another 50, 80 miles away. Okay, well, that's fine. Well, there's no wolf pack over there. Well, We just go ahead and release. We need to release wolves back into this spot again because, again, this is suitable habitat. And and the wolves just moved to other suitable habitat. Well, now that there's other wolf packs over here uh, to the right and to the left, well, now the the wolves will stay here. We can see this... I cannot tell you the number of times I've watched this play out with Prairie Dog Relocations. You'll have a chunk of real estate, uh, an open space that a city or county government opens up to the activists to do a relocation. And even us notwithstanding, um, I gave you my, my... Experience doing translocations, even ec- very large-scale, ecologically significant ones, where I can choose the the re—I mean, I have free choice to pick the best ecologically suitable site for these animals, and even my species that I'm an expert in will pick up and move and settle somewhere else. Let alone let let, let alone wolves, but let's just say with pra- prairie dogs, you can watch over and over and over again where activists are allowed to influence decision making processes and they are they the governing body that is controlling the land allows a relocation onto and i and i'll say a large chunk of, of real estate and i can, there's a several open space parcels in Colorado that i'm thinking of the habitats marginal at best but they're allowed to do a relocation there they do the relocation They use. It doesn't even matter whether it was us or whether someone else. The the relocation is done. The translocation is done. The prairie dogs disperse like crazy. They move to one end or one side of the overall chunk of real estate, and then they settle in there. Maybe only ten percent survive, but that ten percent settles in and does well. The next time there's a project and there there needs to be a relocation, they'll go right back and they'll they'll. They'll make the case of, well, see, we have a relocation site here and the prairie dogs moved. So the prairie dogs are not in this this particular chunk of the of the former, the, the original site that we chose. So there's room to put prairie dogs there. So we need to put prairie dogs there. I'll tell you right now, the vast majority of time they get permission to do it. From the agency, as for the low, go ahead and do it because there's not so they go back to the same spot and they put prairie dogs in the same spot. and guess what happens? The prairie dogs pick up and they move to a different area of the prairie, of the overall property and, and take up residence somewhere else. Meanwhile, the original release site area is largely void of prairie dogs or, or very, very sparsely inhabited inhabited by prairie dogs. All of a sudden here comes another prairie dog relocation need another development needs to to move prairie dogs we want to in this community we need a relocation site guess what well the prairie dogs moved and we still have room in this area here so we we can bring prairie dogs the number of prairie dog releases into the same footprint over and over and over again this is this is standard operating procedure and unfortunately The agency, at, even with prairie dogs, the agency has oversight on some of this stuff. But the other flip side is sometimes the agency's like, hey, it's your land. You can do whatever they want. You, you're in charge of your management. We don't see the prairie dogs being an ecologically significant portion of the landscape here. So, yeah, if you got, if the county government that, own, that controls this landscape wants to allow these prairie dogs, we'll, we'll go ahead and, and issue the permit. And two, three, four plus times, you're bringing prairie dogs into the same property the same parcel released into the same general area with the same effect where the, where the where the prairie dogs just hit the landscape and they move somewhere else. And when you look at the management objectives of the parcel of property, they said, you know, we want X number of acres of prairie dogs or we want X number of prairie dogs or whatever. When you look at the number of prairie dogs they have versus the number of prairie dogs that they're releasing on their landscape, it's they're not even close. So, when I saw when this is why I said what I said last time of we we don't want that it would be I think it's disastrous to add the geographic location to be included in the recovery. That's why, because it doesn't matter about numbers. Is every available chunk of real estate that has quote unquote good habitat as as far as the activists look at, as far as the quote unquote science says, as far as far as their biologists say, it's good habitat. If, if there's good habitat and there's not wolves there, there will be wolves there. They're, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna want to continue to pe- keep putting wolves there, regardless of what the number is. And it's just it, this is a this is a standard operating procedure from that value set. When when I say that wolves are a tool for a bigger purpose, yes, do they want wolves on the landscape? Yes, they do. But you got to ask yourself why. Is it because they just intrinsically like the idea of hearing a wolf howl on the landscape and that's all they uh, all they care about, that's all they want? No. Again, go back to and listen. This is where people this is again, this is why I keep saying sportsmen you need to start paying attention. And and I think the days of and maybe this is a bigger longer discussion later on. I'm going to get into my in my it's going to come up here in a second. But the days of of hobby activism or advocacy and recreational advocacy on the behalf of sportsmen, volunteer advocacy on the behalf of sportsmen—it's done, man. It like it's done. You, you guys, you guys—it's done. You need to stop. You, you need to get. You need to start getting serious because these guys are. If you listen to the testimony on that meeting, you'll hear the people that that literally drafted the language of Colorado Rev- Revised Statute thirty-three two one hundred five point eight. It was th- this thing pisses me. From somebody who's dealt with activists for so long, when I read it, I was instantly pissed off because I knew what they did. They gamed it. I mean, they 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 flat they nailed it. They they fricking flat nail. You guys are so hemmed in on this thing. The only way that you're going to get through it is with getting a, a very high powered attorney and start picking stuff apart. For instance, this is this is awesome. This this one chapped my ass, and I. Section 1, 33.2-105.8 Reintroduction of gray wolves on designated lands west of continental divide in public input in commission development of restoration plan compensation to owners of livestock definitions. Okay, so if you go down to paragraph 2, this is the one that struck me point blank in the face. First, section 2. Notwithstanding any provisions of state law to the contrary, including section 33 2 105.5, section 2, comma, and in order to restore grave wolves to the state, the commission shall. Okay, so what did that mean? Did anybody read that? Like this is what this is what the wolf advocates wrote. Remember, this wasn't some mom and pop in their backyard. This was the wolf advocates. The same wolf advocates that have been fighting US Fish and Wildlife Service in Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming over the wolf issue up there. Constantly taking U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to court, trying to constantly shut things down, constantly unhappy with the, the the fact that wolves got delisted and are now under state management of Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana. These are the same people that have been involved with that. These are the same people that are pissed off that there's hunting of wolves in and around the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, right? These are the same people. These are the people that wrote this law. That line right there, once, re, or excuse me, notwithstanding any provision of state law to the contrary, including Section 33.2.105. So what does that mean? What is that? What is that? So when I read it, I, I looked at it, and I'm like, okay, so what is One Hundred 105.5 was existing state law in Colorado that specifically said you are not allowed to reintroduce and uh, a species considered for endangered, whether it's threatened or endangered species, you're not allowed to reintroduce those species that currently are found within the state. Remember, the agency already had radio collars on wolves in Northwest Colorado in 2019. The wolf was already found in the state. The wolf was already acknowledged in the state. This, the agency had already had tracking on. They, I mean, like it was established that Colorado has uh, uh, has wolves in the state. But they moved forward with the reintroduction language in Proposition One Fourteen anyway, and then they made it legal because if if they had not put this line in this this ordinance or, or excuse me this 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 draft legislation. If they had not put that line in there, notwithstanding any provision of state law to the contrary, including Section thirty three one oh five, this entire thing would have been illegal. But they exempted themselves. Do you think that's by, that was it by accident? Like some jo- Joe Schmedley just accidentally wrote that in? No. They knew exact they knew not only did they know existing state law, they knew how to exempt themselves from the existing state law. And everybody just went, okay. This is the other thing. Okay. Same thing. I was pissed off about the fact that the state they they purposely set this thing up to where the state is going to release wolves on state-owned land and private land. Well, there's not a chunk of real estate in western Kansas or western Kansas west west of the continental divide of of Colorado. Certainly not state-owned and not even privately owned that is going to allow the release of wolves and then those wolves stay on that parcel of real estate. No, they're going to go over to the national forest. You know, they are and BLM lands. Well, how do Normally when you trigger such thing if you trigger an issue against if you're going to negatively impact or drastically doesn't even matter negatively you could do a habitat improvement project on the forest service and you still in some areas have to do a NEPA uh, EIS statement, environmental impact statement how is it that this plan doesn't need to go through the formal channels of the formal EIS why because according to the activists and according to conversations that the activists have had with governor and the commission and, and other, and agency folks, the 10th circuit court has upheld that, well, those type of actions don't necessarily trigger an EIS. So they're getting, they're, they're, they're doing this full well knowing that, you know, technically you should do a full EIS, but the courts have, have said that we really don't have to. So we're going to do this and we're going to move forward and hope that no one sues us on it because or and, and if someone does sue us on it well then we have at least some precedents from the 10th circuit court that that we don't need to do a full EIS we're just going to we'll cross that bridge when we get there i really hope some of you sportsmen listening to this are hearing this because right there is a is a legal challenge as far as i'm concerned i think someone ought to hire a high powered attorney and challenge that 10th circuit 10th circuit uh, determination I don't understand how Colorado as a state is going to go in and drastically impact federal public lands, the Forest Service and BLM and are not going to be required to do a formal EIS. There's that to me is bullshit. Somebody needs to challenge it, but you can't but you're not going to challenge it at the governor's office. You're not going to challenge that at the commission level. You're not going to challenge this with the agency. The only thing that you can do is challenge this at the 10th 10th Circuit Court. District Court. Federal District Court. So get your ass together and get organized and get an attorney and, and go challenge some of this stuff. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is this is where I think Colorado, this is where I say Colorado has lost control of ungulate management. You, not, you can listen to the commissioners and listen to the, the conversations that they're having um, through the public comment period but right here in the law section 1 paragraph 1 c once restored to colorado gray wolves will help restore a critical balance in nature that is the fun and that section 1 is the fundamental premise for why the rest of this is, is being is being done so that's the fundamental pre- premise we heard testimony from people at you know throughout this public process they, the wolf advocates talking about how wolves will bring a balance how wolves will bring a balance the trophic cascades to bring an ecological balance back to the ecosystem because again if you listen to them you know hunters aren't doing that hunters are evil hunters do nothing for for the landscape but wolves will bring a balance back to the landscape a balance of what what does that mean again this is not drafted Carelessly. This is not drafted sloppily. Just like the prairie dog activists and what they wrote into law, every little line, every little phrase, every little clause, every little sentence is, is used later on to challenge any sort of pushback on what was passed. Wolves will help restore a critical balance in nature. What is the balance that they speak of? What balance? The only balance that wolves are going to bring to the equation is the balance between herbivores and the landscape and the vegetation that they're eating. Hunting is used right now to manage ungulate populations. To keep ungulates within an objective that is supposedly in balance with the vegetation, the food resources on the landscape, as well as other considerations, whether it's livestock grazing, etc. Hunting is used to regulate ungulates. Hunting is used to restore to, to maintain a balance between ungulate numbers and the environment. 332 105.8 puts right in the right in the body of the law that wolves will help restore a critical balance in nature. If you think for a second that when when you move forward over the next five, ten years, whatever from Colorado. You get it, let's just say you end up settling on 500 wolves and they're generally distributed across the state pretty well, okay. And you can make, the, a, a biologist can make the argument that the wolves are absolutely recovered and we've got numerous self-sustaining populations across the landscape. Do you think for a second that the activists are going to let you stop there? If you have other populations of elk on the landscape that could support wolves, that is currently being supported and being regulated by hunting, do you think for a second the animal activists are going to allow the wolves to be classified as being recovered while there's still the opportunity to put wolves in other places where hunting is still allowed? If you need hunting in a particular area to keep ungulate populations in check, I guarantee you they are going to turn around in in court are going to argue? Well, the state law—it's a mandate. The people have spoken; it's mandated. Wolves need to take over that position right now. Only when wolves cannot, do not, or you know, on the front range or in these places in and around human development, you know, human uh, population centers where wolves just are not going to be able to fit and and wolves just do not persist okay well maybe in those areas you can do some ungulate management through hunting but in every area i'm telling you right now based on what i've seen with prairie dog activism advocacy every available chunk of real estate that is even remotely construed as suitable for wolves they are going to demand that wolves go there And wolves take up residence there. They will always go back to the well. They will always constantly... I mean, we've got places where even with prairie dogs, they're trying to put prairie dogs into existing established colonies. Well we know there's an, we, we know there's existing prairie dogs there. We know that there's territorial issues there. We know that there's boundaries there. We know that this is the overall footprint of the we know that but you know right over here on this chunk of real estate over here on the on the edge, there's an open area here where we could we could do a relocation here. It's not about numbers. It's about stopping, well, no death by the hand of man. No wildlife, de- no. You will not have. You will not have recreational uh, hunting of wolves. Period. End that pipe dream. End that pipe dream right now. Even lethal control of wolves that are causing problems is going to be an issue. So, no. This is going to be for ungulates. Ungulate management. There is no need to have hunting on the landscape to manage ungulate populations if wolves are here. What did I say last time? In the plan, it already already talks about in the DAUs, in the data analysis units, in the game management units where wolves are going to be released, the agency is going to manage the elk population, deer population, moose population at the, what? Upper limits of of of, of the objective. What does that mean? They're going to allow... Ungulates to maximize themselves to the greatest extent possible towards the upper limit of the objectives in that area. Why? Because they want the wolves. Wolves need to have maximum resources for which to be able to be to establish and persist on the landscape. Once they're established, then it's going to be up to the wolves. It's not like you're going to go in and manage wolves. If the wolves take the elk population down by 50%, just in the language here of the law, it's a, the wolves are what is going to establish the balance. Not humans. Not hunting. Wolves establish, restore a critical balance to nature. They talked about it. How many people talk about it in, the, in their, their public testimony and public comments of the trophic cascade, of the benefits of wolves? Wolves now, those people... That are driving ungulate management in Colorado. Sorry, misspoke. My mind, my mind jumped ahead because there's other I mean, the, the number. There's things happening so fast right now in, in Colorado with the sportsman politics. It's it's it it's it's crazy. I, I don't I don't envy any of you guys. Those people that are driving the wolf issue now are doing so because they know full well. They can utilize it to drive the rest of ungulate management in the state as well and shut down hunting to the greatest extent possible. It's literally what they value. It is literally what they want. And they are upset at what's going on in Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. And they know that they are limited on what they're ever going to be able to do in the future. Now, they're still pushing. They're still trying. Okay, and I'm going to get to it here in a second. They're still pushing. They're still trying, but they know that they're limited. They know that they're limited on what they can do because they've already tried to argue it in courts. Colorado is their chance to 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 make wildlife management in their image. So, what do you do about it? Uh, or, yeah, hold on. What do you do about it? First and foremost, I think, and I don't, and I don't say this flippantly, and I don't say this um, without understanding exactly what I'm saying. I just mentioned it earlier. Number one, time for recreational or hobby advocacy on behalf of sportsmen is is over. You, 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 that 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 ship is sailed. You're done. You cannot do this part-time. You're going to need to get organized. Sportsmen of Colorado are going to need to get organized. You're going to have to start putting some of your individual issues and selfish interests aside and, and figure out how to coalesce under one umbrella. And you're going to have to get organized and you're going to have to get legal representation. You're going to have to hire... Uh, I I hear that sportsmen have hired uh, a lobbyist so far. I hope I hope it's a good one. I, I let me rephrase that. I know who it is. I know who it is. I I I I wish I I hope they just freaking I hope they can. I hope they can move the needle. But you also need to hire start hiring some attorneys. You need to hire some attorneys. I think because number one, I think again if you want to put any sort of sideboards on what's going to happen here with the activists controlling the Wildlife Commission, if you want to put any sort of brakes on this train that has left the station, you're going to need to do it in court. And you're going to need somebody that knows their way around federal court, district court, administrative law, and, and you're going to need to hire somebody like these guys are hiring that that knows what the hell they're doing. And I'm I'm telling you, every time and I've had this conversation with a couple people this past week the activists know they they've worked this okay number one the activists are not hobbyists okay they are organized nationally and they have lawyers on their side they have staff on their side that this is their life this is their passion this is what they do while you're sitting there worried about whether or not you're going to draw your tag this year in certain someone someone whatever you know unit and while you're worried about you know whether your bow you know did you need to get a new bow and what you know what foc you need to be worried about you know shooting your who gives a shit at this point What we're talking about in Colorado is you're going to lose. You're you're, you're losing losing your way of life. You're going to lose your hunting. And so you're going to have to take you're going to have to learn some lessons from the activists and you're going to have to start to get serious. Professionally serious. Organizationally serious. And have people on your side that are legal experts and people on your side that have money. They're willing to put their money in the ring and fight some of this stuff. Right off the bat, like the the this upcoming 10 J rule that is up for public comment, I I think the sportsmen ought to pick apart that 10 J rule eight ways from Sunday because the sport because again remember the the activists because this is what they do for a living this is what they do, this is their life this is everything they live and breathe as passionate as you are about your high country back country you know back country or high country hunting or mule deer hunting okay they are passionate about moving a animal activist animal preservationist agenda forward. And so their people will see every little tiny thread, legal thread, that they can pull and not only they do they pull it, they latch onto that thing and they run with it and they try to unravel the whole damn thing if they can't. We're going to have to start doing that. so Because, it, and I'll, I'll talk here in a second, um, because that's what the activists are doing. You're going to have to do the same thing. If you want to shut them down, slow them down. You're not going to shut them down. You're going to slow them down, hopefully. <clears throat> You're going to have to do the same damn thing. Start going and fighting some of this stuff in court. Oh, sorry. I've, yeah. I'm, And I don't know if I need to read it, but I have it here. Um, I don't remember. If, uh, maybe it'll come up here. Literally, so when I say this is what they do, and this is what they're... Prof- did... Did any sportsman's group release any sort of public statement summarizing what happened on February 22nd, the the commission meeting? You guys out there across the United States, I'm not even talking about you guys in Colorado. Those of you across the United States, did any sportsman's organization listen to the commission meeting and then provide you with any sort of synopsis of what happened their take of what happened and an overview of what happened I didn't see one however because I am on the mailing list for Center for Biological Diversity Center for Biological Diversity had a one-page press release sent out to all its members before the close of business that same day. And in that, I mean, they summarized a bunch, they actually have the quotes for some of their people that they had at that meeting that were testifying on their behalf and they have them listed right in here. Bloom They they have them listed. So and so gave this from Wild Earth Guardians. Said this. So and so said this. Uh, the Michael Saul, Michael Saul, Colorado director for Western Watersheds Project, quote said such and such and this. And then Michelle Lute, a PhD of Wolf Conservation, Carnivore Conservation Director for Project Coyote, said such and such. Like they had that sucker synthesized. They had it well written. And it was out to its national, it was out by the close, it was within hours, done, nationwide. Here's what happened on, here's what happened on February 22nd. Today, today, Denver, scores of Coloradans today voiced their support for science-based, ecologically friendly wolf restoration throughout Colorado during a Colorado, Park, Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission hearing on a draft wolf plan commenters opposed okay this is their again it's all one-sided but who gives a shit this is what this is what they're saying i'll read it why not commenters opposed any future trophy hunts as well as the killing of wolves that prey on livestock without requirements that were <laughs> it, it's bald-faced lie without requirements that ranchers first use non-lethal mes- measures to avoid conflict In 2020, Colorado voters approved Proposition 114, which requires that gray wolves be reintroduced to the state by the end of 2023. The commission must implement a science-based plan to restore, quote, a self-sustaining population of wolves, here we go, quote, with the intent to help restore a critical balance in nature. So now it's not even we want to restore wolves to the landscape. Again, what did I say? This Here it is. This is their press release to all their people. Now, all their people are ready to, to jump into advocacy at a moment's notice for them, right? So the press release to their people said, a science-based plan to restore, quote, a self-sustaining population of wolves with the intent to... Quote, help restore a critical balance in nature. Where did we hear that? Oh, I don't know. Let's go back over to Colorado Revised Statute, 2 1058 uh, Section 1C. Once restored to Colorado, Gray Wolves will help restore a critical balance in nature. they will restore the balance between predator-prey relationship and they will take over ungulate management is what they're saying. The law also designates wolves as, quote, non-game species. Where does that come up before? Hmm, I don't know. Which prohib- prohibits recreational trophy hunting and trapping. An August 2022 poll, and they provide a link to it, by the way, showed that most Colorado voters, including the majority of Republicans and people on the West Slope, don't want wolves trophy hunted or trapped despite this the commission included a potential wolf trophy hunt in the draft plan now again they removed that in the freaking discussion but let's go ahead and look at their okay hold on a minute now are you guys privy to a, a, a poll that was done in august of 2022 so i clicked on their link and i went to their the site they didn't provide any background on what the what the question or or what any they provided a it was just a two page I think it was two page summarized statistics, and the summarized statistics clearly showed the vast majority of people in the West Slope don't want trophy hunting uh, they don't want hunting of wolves, and the vast majority of of Democrats don't want hunting of wolves, and even a majority of Republicans don't want. So who in Colorado could ever say we're going to have hunting in Colorado? Hunting of wolves in Colorado? We did a public opinion poll. We already had Proposition 114 that was voted on by the people of the state and it passed. And in Proposition 14, in. in in Proposition 114, it linked to the language of 33-2-105.8, and in 33-2-105.8, it states that wolves are non-game, which means we're not going to hunt wolves. It's already in state law. The, the people of, of Colorado already passed that, but we went ahead and did it. An, we paid for the Center for Biological Diversity, probably. I don't know who paid for this study. We did a poll, and we, we interviewed people, and here's the statistics to show. So how can we ever have this egregious hunting provision put in the plan well guess what the new commissioners they're not allowing that remember remember what changes were made in the draft plan wait until the last wait until the final plan comes out and you tell me if there's any language in there that says about that you know going from phase three to phase four and we have lethal control and any semblance of the of the imagination that includes hunting Here we go. This is their press release. Opponents of Proposition 114... Quote, opponents of Proposition 114 are practically salivating over this draft plan, as it's not because they belatedly appreciate that wolves will restore a balance in nature, said Michael Robinson, a senior conservation advocate at the Center for Biological Diversity. Quote, Colorado Parks and Wildlife is hoodwinking the public by not revealing that endangered wolves will be gunned down on a regular basis so ranchers won't have to lift a finger to prevent conflicts. Coloradans voted for science-based approaches to wolf restoration." not shooting wolves from helicopters how the freaking hell did we go from that doesn't matter this is what they, it was out instantly 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 after the meeting it was out the commissioner's support to remove to the commissioner's support to remove any mention of a recreational wolf hunt in a revised plan positions colorado to truly okay me, sorry 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 the commissioner's support, now again, it starts to reference to the facts that the commissioners don't want wolf hunting in the plan, right? <clears throat> Here we go. The commissioner's support to remove any mention of recreational wolf hunt in a revised plan positions Colorado to truly become an exemplar for how a state can reintroduce and manage wolves, said Lindsay Harris, or excuse me, Lindsay Lar- Laris, Wildlife Program Director for Wild Earth Guardians. The removal of language hinting at a potential future trophy hunt honors the intent of the voters of Colorado... Wait. The removal of language hinting at a potential future trophy hunt honors the intent of the voters of Colorado. We're very clear. Yeah. The gray wolf is to be restored to Colorado, not hunted and trapped as a repeat of a dark history. End quote. Even before potential trophy hunting, the plan would likely result in a high rate of government killings of wolves because it would not require livestock owners to take any non lethal measures to prevent wolf predation on their stock. The most important such measure would be removal of, or destruction of carcasses. or or destruction of the carcasses of non-wolf killed livestock to prevent wolves from scavenging in the vicinity of nearby livestock that are vulnerable to predation. Quote, Colorado Wildlife Commission has been entrusted by the voters with correcting a catastrophic historical error. Okay, this is why I'm telling you people, you're not, you are no longer in power. you sportsmen of Colorado and the agency no longer has the power here because this is all going to be played out in the courts and public opinion this is going to be it's going to be in played out with the wildlife commission and then if the wildlife commission for some in, just incredible reason cannot put language or in, or move the needle in the direction that they want this is going to be this is going to be challenged in courts <clears throat> because it's not just about bringing wolves to Colorado Colorado Wildlife Commission has been entrusted by the voters with correcting a catastrophic catastrophic historical error. The deliberate eradication of the majestic gray wolf from the state, said Michael Saul, Colorado Director for Western Watershed's project. We appreciate the work to date in bringing back the wolf to Colorado, but the law demands and the voters deserve more than the current draft plan offers. A healthy population of stable, reproducing wolf packs distributed throughout multiple suitable habitats. It's not just it's not just suitable habitat; it's multiple suitable habitats. This is again what I tell you. You give them an inch, and you're gonna be you're gonna be struggling to rein them in six miles from here. Okay? Now it's not just different uh, across the uh, across the state it is going to morph into multiple different habitats so we've got numerous packs of wolves that are that are utilizing that sage aspen ponderosa or sage aspen lodgepole pine and maybe even subalpine fir habitats but we don't really have wolves in that ponderosa pine community let's make that happen throughout distributed throughout multiple suitable, suitable habitats free from the human-caused mortality that wiped them out the first time. Quote, The current version of the plan is more like science fiction than science-based, said Michelle Lute, PhD, the the wolf conservation and carnivore conservation director for Project Coyote. Quote, Colorado Parks and Wildlife wants to pretend that lethal control is a legitimate tool, but modern, best-available science tells us otherwise. Put a pin in that, because I'm going to circle back to that sucker. I'm going to Jen Psaki on that one here in a second. Allowing the use of ineffective lethal tools misinforms the public, wastes public resources, and increases the risks to wolves and livestock. Here we go. Quote, Proposition 114 directs that wolf management is to be guided by best-available science. But Colorado Parks and Wildlife's current draft plan focuses on lethal con- focuses. Okay, again, that's, anyway, keep going. Focuses on lethal control and opens the door to trophy hunting. Neither are supported by ethics or best available science, says Delia Malone, wildlife chair for the Colorado Sierra Club. You notice that it didn't say Sierra Club. What did it say? Colorado Sierra Club. This is where my criticism of sportsmen's advocacy groups in the past have been. It doesn't matter that you live in Washington State or California or Connecticut or wherever Connecticut, and you and you you want to chime in. You have no, you you are not a Colorado citizen, and therefore your your voice is limited. You should should be now, notwithstanding what the what the Wildlife Commission did on February twenty second they they changed the rules on public comment right there in the beginning of the i feel sorry for those of you that went and attended that wanted to speak and were not allowed to speak because somehow you you had provided public testimony before no they changed it right there at the 11th hour to say no 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 we're not we're we're only going to take public comment for people from public comment from those who have not had a chance to provide public comment so far, and what did they do? They just allowed in all these people that were literally from people outside the state to come in and and chime in on. Anyway, I digress. Okay, because that, again, that's gonna that's gonna come back here in a second. But what do they say, Colorado Sierra Club? Why? Because they want to tie the comment to people that live in the state. That is their buy-in. That is their standing in this in this room. That's why the commission can sit there and 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 say, ah, we need to lift, listen to our constituency because it's the Colorado Sierra Club. Quote: Non-lethal means of prevention preventing conflict between livestock and wolves is proven effective, while lethal control is both ineffective in preventing conflict and just dis- in- ineffective at preventing conflict and disrupts wolf family social structure, disabling a pack's ability to survive and perform their role in destroying a critical nature, critical natural balance. So they just, so there's two things that they put right in there. Again, what did I say? Why do they, why isn't it interesting? If you listen to the public comment, why did this, this, this particular comment come up repeatedly that hunting disrupts the, the, Pack dynamics and the ability for a pack to persist on the state on the on the landscape. Why did they keep? They that came up numerous times in public comment. Why? And here we go. It's put it, disabling a pack's ability to survive, survive and perform their role in restoring a critical natural balance. Again, it's all about. It's not about just having wolves on the landscape. Wolves are there for a reason. Keep this in mind, Colorado folks. This is going to come back and bite you in the ass. It's not about having wolves on the landscape. It is about having wolves on the landscape driving the balance of ungulate interactions on the landscape commissioners are expected to vote on a final plan at their meeting in glenwood springs on may three and four because wolves are listed as endangered under the federal endangered species act there is a concurrent process and they have a link for that concurrent process that's the 10j rule the u.s fish and wildlife services current 10j rule it's going to be open up for public comment here shortly being led by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to write a federal rule guiding wolf management in Colorado. Now, that's not what it's supposed to do, but that's what they're going to want it to do. The activists are going to absolutely be putting pressure on the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service through the 10-J rule to try to modify what, what Colorado does. Mark my words. That's why this is in here. Being led by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to write a federal rule guiding wolf management in Colorado. Why was that statement put in there? Put a pin in that. We'll Jen sack you that sucker here in a second. The federal process is an, is expected to finish in time for wolf releases in December 2023. Uh, And then the last line, the commission has been taking public comments to the agency's draft wolf plan since December and is now expected to work with staff to take public input into consideration as the final plan is written. Center for Biological Diversity is a national nonprofit conservation organization with more than 1.7 million members and online activists dedicated to the protection of endangered species and wild places. Do we have an organization of sportsmen that represents 1.7 million members? Anybody? Anybody Bueller? 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 No. So there's the press release that was that was released literally by the end of business day after that meeting. Where was the sportsman response? I didn't see any. That's the type of of advocacy that these guys are bringing to the table, and these are the people that they're putting in positions of power. And decision-making, policy decision-making, state law, okay? The time, Colorado, and and, and I'm sorry, I I will say the same thing for Utah. Utah, you better get your shit together. Wyoming, Idaho, Montana, Washington, Oregon, you guys better get your shit together. Like, Like, organize in a meaningful and constructive way. Because, again, this is a mandate they're, they're, they're saying that this wolf reintroduction is a mandate by the public. But they're using this wolf reintroduction as a, as a way to reshape state wildlife management. And they're going to use this as the benchmark of this is what can be achieved and this is what we should achieve and this is how it should be. We are They are going to rewrite how the North American model of wildlife conservation is written and how the future of wildlife conservation is managed in a state. If you don't think after this gets off the ground, they're not going to start going to states like Washington, Oregon, and start to say, look it, see, Colorado can do it, so can you. They're going to go to those left-leaning progressive states where a handful of city-dwelling people run the bulk of the politics for everybody in the state, and they're going to use that, they've already said that they want to use this as a model for future Management of of wildlife across the United States. Now, are they going to get that everywhere? No. They're are they going to change Arkansas the way that Arkansas manages deer and turkey and everything? No. Hell no. Are they going to change what Colorado is? Absolutely. Are they going to try to change Washington, Oregon? Absolutely. Do I think that they could ultimately someday maybe even change Wyoming or Montana? Well, you keep more and more people from California and, and other areas that have a lot of people that have a shit ton of money that generally lean left, that their money and their livelihood is not tied to organically to the ground, like livestock, agriculture, hunting, that type of stuff, to where they don't have a cost incurred by their their own left-leaning environmentalist, anti-hunting type, animal activist type uh, uh, value sets. Absolutely. I could absolutely... See, most Westerns, New Mexico, holy hell. New Mexico, get your shit together. Because New Mexico, I could absolutely see stuff like this happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, sportsman, time for being a hobby. Volunteer activist. Advocate for hunting. Over. You guys need to get organized. You need to start raising money. You guys need to start getting heavy hitters and start playing in the world of the courts. And Like, literally, start suing eight ways from Sunday. And this is the second, this is where the second part of this, because you're going to have to do this in the courts. Again, what did I say before? I'm not going to, I don't want to beat a dead horse. You, the only pe- the only person that's going to keep the Wildlife Commission in check is the governor or the courts, period. So that's why you have, you can't change it. At this point, you're not going to change the governor. So you're going to have to, you're going to have to try to find some way to get in, uh, on the courts because that's what the activists are doing. All right. So immediately after, um, well here, <laughs> oh bump bump bump. Which one do I want to go for? Oh, okay. Here, let's see. Dun, dun, dun. Ah, so yeah. Let me. So here we go. This is again. This is what More evidence. I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna use this as more evidence of why I'm saying what I'm saying. So why, in public comment, did it keep coming back to saying that um, hunting of wolves was causing a problem? Like hunting of wolves threatens the stability of pe- the ability for packs to persist and reproduce on the landscape. All of a sudden, that just like was a flurry in public comments. Well, what the hell? Where, where did that come from? Right here, I mentioned this last time. A paper published two thousand January of two thousand twenty-three in Frontiers in Ecology and the Environment, uh, which is from the Ecological Society of America. This paper was published in January two thousand twenty-three. Human caused mortality triggers pack instability in gray wolves. That's the title of the paper. Now. I'm not going to go through and try to rip apart the study, or re- rip, rip apart their statistics, or rip apart their their you know what they inferred from this, uh, how they how they do this. That's not the point. The point is it's published paper in a scientific journal, and within a couple of weeks of it hitting the journal, it was immediately used and thrown into not only public dialogue, it's been thrown into a court case. Here we go. Human-caused mortality triggers pack instability in gray wolves. The activists had, they had access and utilized current science. I don't care how qualified you want to put air quotes around that. What science has the sportsman community been bringing to the table Lately, animal activists are bringing recently published journal articles into public comment as soon as they're readily available. Trout. Trial- okay, here we go. Let me let me read the abstract of it, and then I'm going to go to the end. Transbound transboundary movement. Okay, transboundary, trans across boundary boundaries. Okay. Movement of wildlife results in some of the most complicated and unresolved wildlife management issues across the globe. Depending on the location and the management agency, gray wolf, canis lupus, management in the U.S. ranges from preservation to limited hunting to population reduction. Most wildlife studies focus on population size and growth rate to inform management but relatively few examine species' biological processes at scale aside from that of the population. This is especially important for group-living species such as the gray wolf, for which the breeding unit is the social group. (coughs) We analyzed data for gray wolf packs living primarily within several U.S. National Park Service units, and years of data, and those were Denali National Park and Preserve for 33 years, Grand Teton National Park, 23 years, Voyagers National Park, 12 years, Yellowstone National Park, 27 years, and Yukon Charles Rivers National Preserve for 23 years. We identified two gray wolf biological processes that differed from population size, namely pack persistence and reproduction and determined that while human-caused mortality had negative effects on both, pack size had a moderating effect on the impacts of mortality. Okay, So they go through, blah, 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 blah. Here's, Here's the discussion. And this is why this is going to come up. And this is why, unless some other wildlife researcher out there, someone else can pull up a paper, someone else can bring science to the table, this is why we lose. In the discussion, it says, in in this study, we quantified the extent and impact of human course mortality on two gray wolf biological processes, pack persistence and reproduction. In five U.S. national... Human-caused mortality accounted for 36% of collared wolf mortalities and had a detrimental impact to both pack persistence and reproduction. The human-caused mortality of any wolf decreased the predicted odds of pack persistence to the end of the biological year by 27%. So what they're saying is you shoot any wolf out of that pack and you could see a decrease on the the, the likelihood of persistence of that pack decreased by 20 27%. And reproduction the following year by 22%. The human-caused mortality of a pack leader. Now that the first one was just you shoot any random wolf out of a pack, and it and it reduces the likelihood of persistence on the la- that pack to persist on the landscape by twenty-seven percent, and it reduces the likelihood of that pack breeding by twenty-two percent. But if you go in and you shoot one of the alpha, the, the and they've uh, they've already changed that. It's like global warming. It, it, global global warming was being disproved and changed, so then it became global climate change. Okay, so now it, it's pack leader. It used to be alpha, alpha male, alpha female. Well, now it's it's not alpha because that I, I guess that's triggering. It's now pack leader. The human caused mortality of a pack leader discreet decreased the predicted odds of pack persistence to the end of the biological year by seventy three percent, and reproduction the following year by, by following year by forty nine percent meaning you go in and you shoot one of the alpha pair out and it's there's a 50 50 chance that they're going to breed that 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 pack is going to have any sort of breeding and it's a 73 percent chance that the pack just falls apart and disappears and and disappears on the landscape that's what they're saying okay oh Anyway, they they go on to talk about it, blah blah blah. But so that's the study, peer-reviewed journal, Frontiers in Ecology and the Environment, published January 2023, the Ecological Society of America. Hunting of wolves decreases, according to this one paper, hunting of wolves decreases the likelihood of that wolf pack being successful on the landscape and if you shoot an alpha pair out of that pack, then you really create chaos and you really decrease the likelihood of that pack persistence on the landscape. That is why when you, when sportsmen, and, and I, I understand why you did it, and I understand why the agency did it, but it was, mis- in my opinion, it was grotesquely misguided to start talking about phase four language and talking about hunting of wolves in the plan when the state law says it's non game, I think was misguided. And it just threw everyone in a tizzy on the ad wolf advocate side. And then this paper gets published? Oh, shit. No, A. Everybody and their brother's uncle lost their ever living. All the wolf advocates lost their ever living mind. Okay, but at least okay, so two things. Two things. Number one, what I what I was critical of before was sportsmen are not bringing any sort of science to the table. Like in, I I, I know it was harsh, and I'm sorry it was harsh, but the wildlife commission meeting on my stories, I said it was like watching the Harlem Harlem Globetrotters playing your local middle school basketball team. While animal activists are over there citing research papers, sportsmen slash landowners are over there emotion. It's emotion. You you didn't bring science to the... you, You had no ammunition. You didn't... These guys are... Anyway, doesn't matter. They brought science to the table and they brought in science and incorporated into the public comment as far as the commissioners are concerned that stuff has merit i understand that the commission is biased of course they are but if you take this to the general public the general public is going to be like well that sounds like it makes sense we of course we can't have hunting on the landscape guess what else happened since that paper came out press release february 27th 2023 again from center for biological diversity Lawsuit launched to protect Colorado wolves from hunters at Wyoming border. What? Yeah, here we go. Denver. The Center for Biological Diversity today, this is the 27th, notified the U.S. Forest Service of its intent to sue over the agency's failure to protect wolves from hunters in Medicine Bow Route National Forest. (laughs) The lawsuit would seek a ban on wolf hunting and trapping in the entire forest which straddles the Colorado-Wyoming border. Quote, Colorado's precious, endangered wolves. Here we go. Colorado's precious, endangered wolves shouldn't be gunned down when they wander across a state border they don't even know exists. End quote, says Colleen Atkins, Carnivore Conservation Program Director at the Center. Quote, to truly help Colorado's wolves recover, we're, we're already talking about the wolves that are in the state, okay? So, just keep going. The tr- to truly help Colorado's wolves recover, the Forest Service needs to move quickly to ban wolf hunting and trapping in the Medicine Bow Route National Forest. Our federal public lands should be safe havens for rare wildlife, end quote. In January... Continuing, in January 2022... T- sorry, wrong. Read it, Chris. In January... 2021, two wolves that entered Colorado from Wyoming were documented traveling together. That June, agency staff observed six black pups with this pair in Jackson County, Colorado. These pups are the first known wild wolves born in Colorado since the 1920s. This family is now referred to as the North Park Pack. In the fall of 2022, Colorado Parks and Wildlife received reports that Wyoming hunters killed three black sub-adult female wolves within 10 miles of the Colorado border in central Wyoming near the Medicine Bow Route National Forest. Agency scientists believe that, those wolf, that these wolves were young members of the North Park pack. Quote, it's inexcusable that Colorado wolves face death when they cross into Wyoming, said Adkins. Quote, until federal protections are restored. To Wyoming's wolves, the U.S. Forest Service needs to step up and ensure wolves aren't killed on federal lands. Now, we know that Forest Service doesn't manage wildlife. The state agencies manage wildlife, right? So why in the world are we going after the Forest Service to shut down wolf hunt? What that... Keep going. Wolves that travel across the border into Colorado or are reintroduced into Colorado are federally protected... Under the Endangered Species Act. However, wolves that enter Wyoming are from Colorado are not protected and can be killed under Wyoming state law. <clears throat> Here we go. The Endangered Species Act requires federal agencies like the U.S. Forest Service to conserve endangered wolves. Today's legal notice explains that by failing to ban wolf hunting and trapping in on the Medicine Bow Route National Forest, or otherwise take actions to promote the survival and recovery of Colorado wolves, the Forest Service is violating federal law. The Endangered Species Act requires that parties submit 60-day notice of the intent to sue. Blah blah blah, blah fails blah blah blah. That suit right there. Is going to go, they're going to try to get whether they succeed or not is irrelevant. They're going to harass. They're going to start harassing anybody and everybody in this in the courts that they can, based off of what Colorado is about to do. And so they're going to go after the Forest Service. Now, if they get a day in court, you're going to tell me that the reason their justification of of arguing that not only are they going to justify the, the reason why they need to shut down wolf hunting in the south central part of Wyoming is because of the endangered species act but you don't think for a second the this this recent paper human caused mortality triggers pack instability you don't think that that research is going to get thrown in on that discussion we can't have wolf hunting in south central wyoming because any take of any wolf is going to jeopardize the stability of that wolf pack especially any breeding so now what's going on in Colorado, they're going to make the argument is going to have direct impact to Wyoming. Because why? Because they're already pushing and pressuring the US Fish and Wildlife Service to revisit the fact that they need they want a, a they want all wolves listed under ESA, they want to remove state control, state management control of of wolves, and they want a national recovery plan, a national management plan. Most of these, most of these groups, and when I say this is why I'm critical of groups like National Wildlife Federation, Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and some of the others. Many of them consistently advocate. For a nationwide solution to for future wildlife conservation and management. National funding. National programs. National oversight. Not statewide. We can bitch and complain about the animal activists here in this one all we want, but we have our own, quote-unquote, sportsman organization doing the same damn thing. Using our name and, and saying, on behalf of sportsmen. Looking for a national solution national oversight. We can have a discussion someday about the the roadless rules, Clinton rule versus the state rules of what sportsman advocacy groups in conjunction with environmental groups tried to do for national forest management. There was a push back in the day to have nat- all of U.S. national forests managed under one federal rule. Colorado and Idaho pushed back on that. Because it doesn't work. And we watched sportsmen's organizations push back, across, back against that and hijack the, the whole freaking program. And get... there is a massive movement to move away from the traditional North American model of wildlife conservation. These guys are trying to go after the Forest Service. And they're going to be going after the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service again to try to get a national rule. They're trying to use the national public lands, the federal, federal public lands, national forest, as their tool to shut down, to increase regulatory oversight by the feds and to shut down state management of wildlife. I don't know if they're going to actually have a case before the, the Forest Service, but gee, sportsmen of Colorado wouldn't that be really damn handy to have someone in your back pocket that you could go lean on somebody that knows the law and that knows what's going on and have an advocacy group that would I don't know I don't I don't know file an amicus brief on behalf of the people of Wyoming on behalf of the people of Colorado on behalf of sound science and the North American Model of Wildlife conservation and say uh, no you don't the Forest Service does not have purview over directing state wildlife management. Is there going to be any sportsman's organization that's going to that's going to if 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 this gets any traction in the federal process, is there going to be any sportsman group that's going to file an amicus brief on behalf of sportsmen in, in Wyoming and Colorado? I don't know, but it'd be damn handy if there was. These guys are polling science. These guys are fighting in courts. Sportsmen had better freaking start learning that lesson and start doing the same damn thing. You'd better start doing the same damn thing. You guys bitch and complain about... I say you guys. Sorry. Don't mean to be... I'm not trying to... Sportsmen as a whole. We will go out there and we will spend how many thousands of dollars on a new set of camo? uh, Thousands of dollars on a new bow setup. We'll spend thousands of dollars on our elk hunting trip or whatever. We'll spend that money when it selfishly serves our interest. But how much money do we spend... When it comes down to actively putting advocacy on the ground to preserve the, the the actual ability to go hunt on the landscape, like I said before, we just had somebody put seven hundred twenty-five thousand dollars on the ground to, to, for mule deer conservation and management habitat conservation and management in Arizona. Where where do we have those people? People like that, or even the sportsman body in general putting that type of money towards advocacy to keep hunting on the landscape. Colorado is about to lose its elk hunting. Colorado is about to lose its elk hunting, and it'd be very curious to see what ends up happening with mule deer as well because again, some of the some of the conversations and dialogue from those people who have lived it show that in many areas I don't know the statistical strength behind these these comments and these statements, but this is where some of those people need to chime in. Those people that lived in Idaho and Wyoming and Montana, the professionals that lived and worked on this stuff, you start pushing elk into wolves, start spreading elk out, start pushing elk down into different areas, those elk start pushing themselves down into traditional mule deer wintering range and now mule deer are having to compete with elk. It is impacting the the range condition and quality for mule deer. It's not even the direct predation of wolves on mule deer. It's the the competition between elk pressure on habitat that's affecting mule deer habitat. So Colorado's about to be in a world of hurt. Number two, and it's related to number one. My other thoughts on on what what you guys are going to need to do. You guys are going to have to start accumulating science. You guys are going to have to start leaning heavy on. Um. You're going to have to start pulling your own side again two things one again remember the agency right now our current biologists in Colorado are gag ordered they have a gag order they cannot talk about this stuff and they really cannot reach out and help you they're going to be they're going to be they're under threat of being fired if they if they step out of line so they're not going to be able to help you so some of the science that you guys are going to need as your ammunition and your armor if you will is going to have to come from Idaho, Wyoming and Montana number one number two we're gonna to have to start to learn you can't be friends with the agency. You can have friends, individual people that you are friends with inside the agency, but you cannot be friends with the agency. And there's been a long standing relationship between hunters and anglers and state agencies because we're hand in hand. We pay for it, they they provide hunting opportunities. I mean, that's just the bottom line. And there's always been this relationship where the sportsmen are a friend of the wildlife agency, and I and I value that, and that it's important. However, folks in Colorado, you got to understand this agency, and, and I don't mean the agency. Let's just let's just separate the agency a minute. Let's just the wildlife commission. The wildlife commission is is now demonstrating. That it's going to be actively, in my opinion, my opinion, the long-term reality of this is the commission, and because the commission is going to direct the agency, they are going to be downright hostile to sportsman interests. They're not on your side. The the, the, the tide has turned, the value sets have turned on the commission, where the commission is not necessarily, they're not, I don't think the commission, I'm just going to say it, the commission is not on your side they're not a friend to the sportsman the sportsman community and by default because the commission regulates and direct, directs the agency i'm sorry the agency is not going to be the friend of the sportsman they can't and so the sportsmen you sportsmen in colorado are going to have to come to grips with you are entering a different era where the agency the commission that regulates the agency is not is, does not value the traditional North American model of wildlife conservation it does not value a consumptive use uh, existence On let, let's, I'm not even going to talk about funding, let's just talk about existence you're going to have to set aside the preconceived notions of being a friend to the agency and you're going to have because the activists don't give a shit about being a friend to the agencies. They are a bully to the agencies and they get their way. Sportsmen are going to have to start embracing the courts, uh, embracing the legal remedies rather than relationship administrative process remedies. Progressives are not going to be following the process. They will only follow administrative processes so long as the administrative process gets them closer to the goal that they want. As soon as the administrative process does not move that needle in that direction, <clears throat> they will either do what they're doing now, stack the Wildlife Commission, or they will change the rules on who gets to testify and when and how. Or they will, t- and we're going to get to the the big game survey here in a second, or they'll, they're going to start changing the rules. They'll start changing the process. So that way they are allowed to do what they want to do and get where they need to go. And even then, if that never fails, if all of that even still fails, they're just going to go straight to the courts and try to win over that way. Sportsmen are going to have to come to grips with they're not in your corner. I'm not saying individuals in the agency aren't in your corner. Yes, they. I know for a fact we've got many good biologists and many good managers in the agency that do have your interest in at heart and they are batting for you every chance that they get but they don't have the power the commission has the power sportsmen you do not have power the only power that you can have is by going to the court's and having the courts interject on your behalf. If there's anything that you any little thread that you can pull on, it's going to be the courts that are going to allow you to exercise that. Not not any administrative process, not any friendship with the agency or former commissioners or whatever. You're going to have you're going to have to get court you're going to have to get legal representation and you're going to have to start leaning heavy on the science. To argue your points, and I, I say that with a hesitation. Okay, what did I say before? It doesn't matter. It, it, it's pointless to argue facts and logic for those people who, who do not who do not value facts and logic. That's true. But when when they use facts and logic, when they bring a paper into the public dialogue, a scientific journal, a scientific paper. In scientific data into the public discussion it is going to lend more credibility to their side they're going to be making an emotional plea they're going to be playing on value sets but when they bring science and data to bear they're going to be doing it to, to bolster their argument in a certain direction sportsmen are going to have to be fam- not only familiar with the papers that they could bring to bear you're going to have to have an answer. You're going to need to have an answer. And just denying that there's, well, th- th- that's that's bullshit, I don't agree with that. That's just, and, and rather than marginalize some of their statements, rather than trying to marginalize them claiming that they have some scientific evidence, you, you're going to need to understand what the science, you're going to have to understand where they came from, What is it that they're using to bolster their argument? And then you're going to either have to be able to accept what they say as truth. You're going to either listen to it and qualify what they say and and provide some context with it. Or you're going to have to provide your own equal or greater level of science to refute it. So that in the court of public opinion, uh, it's fine that these guys are making this argument and they bring up ABC. That's fine. However, they miss the point because over here we've got abc one two three xyz we've got all this that says the opposite all that did it, it didn't negate the emotional plea that the or, that the activists are bringing all it's going to do is diffuse the science that they bring to the table sportsmen are going to have to do this because one of the ones that i thought was interesting was was the number of sportsmen that were poo-pooing the idea that wolves might help with cwd and in sports, no, that's that's, that's, that's a bunch of, that's a bunch of bull, that's ridiculous bullshit, I do they're, they're going to exacerbate it, they're going to, they're going to go out there and they're going to spread it, they're going to make it a worse, mo- okay, where, where's your science, where, where's your science, where is your science to support that? Because right now, I've already talked about it in, in an earlier podcast, in Colorado, Matt Aldrich, and, uh, well, it's called et al. When you when you hear et al. on a scientific paper, there's multiple authors. Multiple people worked on it and were were in multiple people worked on it, were responsible for, for writing doing the research and writing the paper. And so they list out all the authors. But the primary author is listed and then it's et al. Like and all and just it just includes all the other authors authors. So there was there's already a paper published in Colorado with mountain lions looking at whether mountain lions were were Differentially preying on CWD positive deer or not. In short, it looks like they could be, and there's other science to suggest that coyotes might be doing the same thing. Because why? Chronic wasting disease attacks the brain, and clinic a clinical diagnosis of CWD late late, late stage sorry late stage CWD manifests itself by you know, drooling and and wasting away, you know, skin and bones. They just don't eat and they start to starve and, yep, you know, they just waste away. They're standing there. They're disoriented. Their heads are down. Their ears are down. They're drooling. They're in there maybe next to water or whatever, and then they die, okay? So that's late stage, chronic, you know, clinical stage CWD. But they don't get to that point in an instant. It's a slow progression. So at some point, the progression of the prion, the, the progression of the disease in the brain is going to start to affect the behavior of that animal. That animal's just not going to be firing on all cylinders. I've talked about this before on mine, what I was looking and hoping to do with coyote management here in, in, on the grounds that I manage. We have CWD here, and I we let coyotes just do what coyotes wanted to do. We didn't shoot any coyotes for a long time because I figured, well, those deer, as soon as they start to feel the effects of CWD, they're just not firing on all cylinders, those coyotes are going to see them, they're going to identify that, they're going to take them down, they're going to kill them, eat them, and hopefully just kind of keep the CWD at bay. Now, I it probably it's it's probably not happening out here. We've got CWD moving across the landscape, apparently a hell of a lot more a lot faster than than what you know everybody was hoping. So I don't know if letting coyotes run amok was actually helping us or not, but we know that if a deer is not firing on all cylinders, it's just acting a little odd. The coyotes are going to nail them. Well, that's what Matt Aldrich and the guys that were doing the mountain lion research kind of postulated. They're looking at it. And it seems like maybe the mountain lions are keying in on behavior issues, some things that are going on with mule deer, and they're bringing those mule deer down at, you know, maybe, maybe mountain lions are disproportionately choosing CWD animals over other animals. I don't know. It warrants more research. Blah 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 blah. Well, here's a, so okay. So you guys that are saying, oh, you know, predation is going to do anything. It's not going to do anything. Hold on a minute. You don't know what predation from wolves is going to do for CWD. You don't know what predation on mountain lions to mule deer is, is going to do for for CWD. That research is emerging, and quite honestly, as that research emerges, there seems to be seems to be right now a trend in the direction where no predators are able to detect predators are differentially selecting predators are tart like so you can shit on the statements of the activists about the CWD portion right now if you want to but you very well may be well, look at look at what's going on now in the public space with regarding COVID back in the day to say that it, COVID came out of a lab leak in Wuhan—that you were a conspiracy theorist, you were a you were a nut job, basket case—we all knew the truth. And now, now look what's happening. Oh, well, the research, you know, the, the latest intelligence report says it might have been a, a, a lab leak. No shit. Okay, so in the beginning, those people that didn't want to hear the 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 anti-COVID narrative poo-pooed every ounce of evidence every discussion regarding a Wuhan lab leak. Just shut it down dismissed it. You're a nut job. You're a crackpot blah 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 blah. Guess who's eating crow now? Well sportsmen might be into the same freaking boat because if you, if you aren't reading the, the, the scientific literature if you're not staying up on li- scientific literature what the hell are you doing arguing freaking scientific when, they bring, when the activists bring up a, a, a concern and, and some scientific statement Who the hell are you to disprove it or or poo-poo it or disregard it? It makes you look like an idiot later on in the public sphere because, look at this, ho-ho, Penn State Today, let's see, science and technology, Uh, that's what I printed off, that's not, proof of, so, trained dogs can sniff out a deadly deer disease. The proof of concept investigation by School of Veterinary Medicine researchers suggest detection dogs could be an asset in the effort to identify, contain, and manage chronic wasting disease, a highly contagious ailment. What is this you say? Now, this is, uh, this is not the scientific paper. This is an article about it. I did read the scientific paper what they were talking about, and it's, this, this summation is fairly accurate, so I'm just going to go with it. Charlie, Jerry, and Kiwi are pet dogs with a superpower. Their sensitive noses can distinguish between a healthy deer and one sick with chronic wasting disease, CWD, all from a whiff of the deer's poop. That's the finding of a study by scientists from Penn State's School of Veterinary Medicine published in the journal Prion. Using feces samples from CWD-positive deer and deer in which CWD was not detected, the researchers trained the dogs to identify the odor of CWD, alerting their handlers to its presence in the lab and in the field. Quote, we were already quite certain that the dogs could detect the volatile organic compounds released by the chronic wasting disease in feces, says uh, Amrita Malikar... Sorry, Amritha Malikarajan, Malikarajan, Malikar... 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 there you go. A postdoctoral researcher in Penn Vets Working Dog Center and lead author on the study quote, not only did we show that this was possible, but we also answered a second, more interesting question which is, can they detect the disease in a simulated field setting as they would if they were using the dogs to find the disease in the landscape of a forest or on a deer farm? The dogs indeed could. With enough accuracy to suggest that detection dogs could be useful in a strategy in the fight to manage CWD. <clears throat> Quote, we learned a lot through the study and are now set up well to continue refining our training. CWD is a disease that affects a variety of deer species, blah, 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 blah. No cure exists. The disease has been in Pennsylvania since 2012. The state has invested significantly in trying to contain it, with several tools in place for keeping tabs on its spread. One hurdle is figuring out which deer are affected. A healthy-looking but affected animal could shed prions, malformations, and infections, proteins, blah, 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 for many months or even years before succumbing to the illness. What's more, prions are known to bind to soil, potentially contaminating the land on which animals may roam. The gold standard diagnostic test can only be performed by after death by assessing an affected animal's brain. Some alternative tests have been trialed have been trialed that involve taking a biopsy from a potentially infected animal while it's still alive but deer are known to be highly stressed by being captured and collecting these samples can be physically and logistically difficult for the people involved as well the working dog center the pennsylvania department of agriculture blah blah, blah were well positioned to try to contribute an additional technique for managing the disease dogs and their highly sensitive noses ideally Dogs trained to discern CWD positive from CWD not detected feces in a forest or deer farm could help state agencies and private landowners understand whether further testing or management would be needed to keep their land and herds free from the disease. First, scientists had to prove that the dogs could make this distinction reliably. So the Working Dog Center began by enlisting three dogs from the Citizen Science Program. Okay, just people's pets these weren't even trained these weren't even these aren't like bred for nose work no these are people's pets a labrador retrievers charlie and kiwi and a finnish spitz jerry to train on the center's scent wheel blah 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 uh, here you go. The dogs proved adept at this task. Once they had been trained using samples provided by the U.S. Department of Agriculture and processed by the Wildlife Futures Program, the dogs responded great speci- with great speci- specificity, passing by the not detected samples 90 to 95% of the time. <clears throat> Their sensitivity, however, was not as strong, alerting to just 40% of the samples. Okay, so you could have accuracy and precision. We can talk about that later, but regardless, the dogs could figure it out. And this is just pet dogs on the initial go, right? We're not talking about coyotes that make their living off of living off the land and using their nose. And we certainly aren't talking about wolves that do the same damn thing. All right. Long story short, they were able to show that yes, the dogs were able to go out into a field where samples were placed, and now these samples were placed in a manner that was not going to spread CWD out on the landscape. But In a field setting, simulated field setting the dogs were able to fairly accurately figure out which deer's poop samples had CWD in it. So when you hear the wild so that stuff, this was brought I found that through one of the activist sites, one of the wolf advocate sites. The wolf advocates have it. The, the, The wolf advocacy people have it right now. Right now, they have that data. It's just been published! And they have it. And they're using it. Where's ours? Where's our science? Where's our data? Where are our papers? Who's out there? Who's out there doing this on behalf of sportsmen? So, here we are, a, a recent paper that somebody's pet dog, like, after how many generations of crossbreeding, inbreeding, poor whatever, we got a lab, we got a couple labs and a and a. A finished spits, little dog, with a minimal amount of training, were able to pick up which poop samples had CWD in it. You're telling me that a wolf don't? You're telling me that, that coyotes don't? So there's more and more science to suggest that predators can detect CWD on the landscape. Whether it is by behavior, watching the animal, it's, it's just the, the the deer or the elk or the moose is just not behaving properly, and they're not firing all on all cylinders. Or here in this one, here we're talking about they can they can pick up the prion, the scent of the volatile organic compounds of of, of the tissue in the uh, in the fecal matter, and detect that there's there's CWD there. Now, are you telling me that predators who have to live by killing prey on the landscape, they they take down a deer because of CWD. And they took down that deer relatively easy, or, or elk, or moose. They took down that deer, elk, or moose relatively easy. It was an easy kill. They drop that animal on the ground, they start tearing it open from the inside out. Are you telling me they're not going to be picking up on those volatile organic compounds inside the, 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 that ungulate's body? That, I mean, if you can pick up organic compounds in fecal matter, are you telling me that they're not going to be, as they're feeding, actively feeding on that carcass, they're not going to smell that same thing that the, the domestic dogs were picking up on? Of course they will. And are you telling me an animal that that has to adapt on the landscape? I I can give you examples of of what's going on with our coyotes out here in in Northwest Kansas. But a a predator that has to learn and has to exploit prey better and better and better because the prey is always learning as well, right? So the the predators are very adept at learning and overcoming obstacles and an ever-changing prey-based landscape. You're telling me that they... Find an animal that's easy to kill. They're in there feeding on it. They're smelling these organic, comp- they're smelling these 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 odors of whatever the CWD is, is giving off. You're telling me, is that animal later on, some week down the line, is tripping across the landscape and finds deer or elk, moose pellets or whatever, and sniffs, sniffs, sniff. sniff, sniff. Hey, wait a minute. That smelled like that other easy, that smells exactly like that easy thing that we killed the other day. Let's go find it. Do you think that he wouldn't do that? Anybody that 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 works with dogs knows the, absolutely they will. Absolutely, they'll learn from that, and they'll trigger. They'll they'll absolutely learn from that. So, sportsmen, when you hear activists start talking about the science, if you just go out there and you're like, oh, that's a bunch of that's a bunch of bullshit. That's ridiculous. I don't Blah. You need. You might want to check yourself because. If you don't have that, if you aren't looking at the papers and you're looking at the science, you better know what the hell you're talking about. Because the problem is this. Facts and logic don't matter to those people who have no value for facts and logic. However, it, all, it never hurts. It never hurts to bolster an argument. And so if you're in the public sphere and the animal activists start spewing science and pulling up papers and starts flopping these scientific papers on the desk in front of you. This and this and this, and you've got the court of public opinion out in front of you, and all you're doing over there is sitting there going. You you could you do you you want you you can do so you you do you can you you want you want. Who? Which side do you think that they're going to go on? What, what side of the court of public opinion or even a court of law is going to go on? The time for recreational advocacy is over. The time for sportsmen to be a friend or... I, I don't know how I want to put this. I hope you get my understanding. You can't be friends with the agency. The, eight, the, the, the commission and the they're moving in a direction that is going to be directly hostile to you and they do not care and they do not care about the process they're going to game the process and they're going to steamroll over you you better get serious you better start looking at the courts start working and i mean yeah i'll just leave it there and then the last thing i'm going to leave you with this is is this one's going to be an interesting one so the big game survey it's it's published. You can go on the Colorado Parks and Wildlife page. They're soliciting input for the next five-year big-game season structure. What does that look like for Sportsman of Colorado, the the five-year big-game season structure? Well, keep in mind, everybody in the sportsman community is bickering amongst themselves, talking about, you know, the the resident hunters hate the non-resident hunters, non-resident hunters want opportunity, but, you know, there's too much crowding, there's too much blah, 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 so we need to really shut down non-resident hunting, and we need to figure out a way, I mean, here we are infighting and bickering amongst ourselves right now, trying to figure out how we shut down or how Colorado shuts down or limits non-resident participation in elk hunting and deer hunting, and et cetera, because of, of just overall extreme pressure. But nobody wants to talk about the fact that non-resident hunters right now, based on recent report from the CPW, non-resident hunters are bringing in, what, roughly about $50 million into the agency? If the resident hunters want to limit non-resident hunting again I'm not a resident so I don't have I, I, I'm not I'm just bringing up a, a something for you to chew on as a resident hunter that wants to drastically limit non-resident participation I understand your sentiment but what you mean is you're gonna you're gonna substantially eliminate tens of millions of dollars of revenue coming into the agency. Are you willing to backfill that money to the agency? Are you willing to spend, are you willing to spend for a resident elk tag, are you willing to spend $200? I, I don't know what the number end up ends up being. Is it 100, 150, 200, 250? I don't know what your number is, but your number is damn sure not 50 bucks or whatever it is. Now, it's, it's, it's well higher than what you're paying now. Because this is the other thing. Again, I truly believe Colorado has lost control of its ungulate management in the long term. Let's just play this thought exercise. Colorado residents put an input into the discussion for the agency to consider and the Wildlife Commission to to consider that Resident hunters want to limit non-resident hunting by whatever percent. I don't even care what it is. But the resident hunters want to shut down a significant chunk of the non-resident participation. Okay, fine, whatever. okay. That is going to trigger a reduction in how many tens of millions of dollars of license revenue. How do we backf- How does Colorado backfill that budget shortfall? Given the fact that we have this now mandate by the commission and by the public of Colorado, 0.91% of the of the of the public of Colorado has this mandate to bring wolves into the state. We're already talking about it's gonna cost this the, the CPW millions, millions of dollars right now to get this thing off the ground, while at the same time, by default, in some of these game management units and data analysis units for elk they where they're going to release release uh, release wolves they're going to have to manage the elk pop whether short-term or long-term they're going to have to manage the elk population at, they've already said that they would do so So it would not surprise me that the animal activists and the commission make it a fell swoop of day one as soon as the wolves hit the ground in DAU whatsoever, such and such that a a, an immediate result of that is also the commission directing the agency to automatically now reduce licenses in that unit because you have to uh, you have to allow the elk population to thrive at its most healthy and productive state so that it ensures the successful establishment of wolves within that area so you're going to see i truly believe you're going to see in the short term if not immediate a direct reduction in overall elk tags available to the public resident or otherwise so you have you you limit the non-resident hunters, you're taking a massive monetary hit. Wolves being put on the landscape is taking a massive monetary hit to the state of Colorado. Because wolves are precedent on the landscape and wolf reintroduction is priority there's going to be a reduction in the number of tags available to hunters, which means resident hunters aren't going to have as many elk tags available to them to be able to purchase. So just you paying more for your license to exclude non-resident hunters, you're probably going to have less tags in which to buy in which to fund the agency, which means you're possibly looking at going to have to pay a hell of a lot more money than just what you lost from the non-resident restriction. Does that make sense? And here's the beautiful thing about it. To participate in the uh, five-year big game season structure uh, discussion, which goes before the Wildlife Commission, all you need to have is a valid email address. That's it. It doesn't ask you for your sportsman's ID number. It doesn't ask if you've... From what I've seen so far. It doesn't ask for a sportsman's ID. It doesn't ask for uh, a hunting license purchase. No. What's What's your email? Go ahead and provide comment. Do you think for a second that the wolf advocates aren't going to be chiming in on what they want to see for the next, five? I believe... Are you, I truly believe, are the wolf advocates not going to engage in that process and start providing public comment? No way. No way in hell are they going to let that process go unnoticed and not jump in on the discussion as well. Because remember, now, because of wolves, ungulate management is not a sportsman's issue. Ungulate management is a wildlife issue, wildlife conservation issue. This is a threatened and endangered species act issue. This is a, a an imperiled species, apex predator, keystone species that, that 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 causes trophic beneficial trophic cascades on the landscape. Do you think for a second they're not going to jump in on this discussion? I have no idea. What you, as sportsmen in Colorado, are going to do? I think you're you're. I think you're twelve days late and a few million dollars short on getting into this discussion in a in an effective manner to to put up and and fight against um, this level of animal activism and the fact that now animal activists are at the helm and they're in, they're in charge of ungulate management now. You're gonna have to get organized. Sorry, you're gonna have to get organized. You're gonna to have to start raising money. You're gonna to have to start gathering science. You're gonna to have to start fighting in court. And you're gonna to have to stop thinking the way you have in the past because this is a new era. Um, I, 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 I hate, I hate saying it. Again, and I, and I apologize for whatever. I mean, it's not like it's not my, again, I'm not a resident, so it's not my responsibility to do any of this thing for, for Colorado, but um, I, I was unaware. I, I, I was not, I did not mentally check in as a non resident who hunts in your state at your pleasure now. I did not mentally check into the wolf issue in depth. I didn't know it was as bad as what it is until you guys asked me to dive in and asked me my opinion. And I started just peeling back the layers and every time I peeled back another layer it just got stinkier and stinkier and stinkier. I don't know. For me it's a sad day because... um, I lived it with prairie dog ad- advocacy or activism. Well, hell, there's there's rumors now that one of the prairie dog advocates or activists is 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 possibly being considered for the uh, being on the commission. Uh, animal activists are squarely in control of the wildlife commission right now. You guys are in for <clears throat> you guys are in for uh, a period of pain. It's not until the average public starts to feel the pain with you where the public will start to shift their value set back towards some semblance of balance and compromise the thing that fears that, that I'm fearful of in this in this case is the people that are going to feel the pain the most are not the people that are in charge of the politics of Colorado. The people on the front range, the the Denver metro area, Boulder area, Pueblo, you know, those people are the majority. of Those people are not going to ever feel the pain, and unless unless it starts to get to the situation, I was talking with Kelly, my wife. She's like, then if sportsmen start losing recreational opportunity, because I, quite I haven't even gotten into the fact that sorry, I missed this entire. But I mean, literally, the fact that they're oh, sorry. This whole thing with the Forest Service. You guys, I'm sorry, sportsmen, you guys better jump on this shit hard. Like now. You better shut that shit down hard. Because what I have a feeling, I don't think they have much of a case against the Forest Service, but that has never stopped animal activists before, what they'll do is they'll continually harass, continually harass, continually ha- keep embroiling things in a a hostile environment and, and hostile connotations where the 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 governing body just says, all right, we don't want to fight with you anymore. Folks in Colorado, take a lesson learned from the freaking, the predator folks in Colorado. Like the agent, every time the predator folks in Colorado threaten to sue, the, the agency would be like, hold, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Like, let's let's not go to that. And, and all of a sudden, here we are—a new, a new uh, uh, agencies respond to to legal action a lot faster than they respond to the administration pro- administrative process by people that that come hat in hand to the the. My worry with this Forest Service thing is. It wouldn't surprise me if that's their next tactic to start going after individual national forests. There's already talk within the environmental circles about all this climate change stuff, the climate justice. Look at the look at the people. Go and look at the Wildlife Commission. Go look at the people that are put on the commission. Go read their biographies. Their self the the, the people themselves put forth the biography, all right? And then start looking into who they are. Some of the people on the uh, on on the commission their their own biographies say they are advocates and activists for environmental justice, equity, includes diversity inclusion. We heard one of the commissioners say it's not about equity of of the the essentially the skin color of people involved with this. It's about the the environmental justice of what is going to happen on the landscape for wildlife conservation and management so many of these people want a federal oversight want federal heavy hand directing things they don't want the state to have the purview to manage critters so I think you're going to see them going after the Forest Service more and more and more and and the Forest Service it wouldn't surprise me if some of the forests don't acquiesce to some of their demands to the point, this, this is where my wife says, she says, you know, if the sportsmen start being removed from the recreational landscape, sportsmen need to start pitching a fit and demanding that, well, okay, if we if we don't have a place on the landscape, neither does the average citizen of Colorado. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. That is going to make sportsmen the enemy of the general people of or sportsmen, the enemy of the general populace of Colorado, especially the recreational users, users, and we don't need another enemy. I understand that. But it would be interesting to say, because again, until the average public starts to feel the pain of activist-run policies, they're not going to be amenable to change. Sportsmen are already embarking in a completely new frontier here. This is not going to be the way it used to be. You've entered into a completely different room of this house, a different room that you've never been into before. So, until the average general public of Colorado starts to feel the pain of environmental activism, environmental justice, a new paradigm for wildlife and environmental management, they, they're they're most likely not gonna be on your side to get bring about any change in the future. They're gonna have to feel if you start losing recreational opportunities across the West, across Colorado, on public lands. Should not also the, the mountain bikers? Should not also the people that want to go trail run? Should not also the people that just want to go hike up that 14er? Because here we are talking about, you know, recreation. Colorado, I mean, I hate the, I hate the study, but I've already mentioned about the fact that Colorado in the past was trying to, I think, find money in the non-consumptive user groups by linking... Recreation to landscape change and, and herd, you know, DAU level impacts on elk and deer and everything else. They were trying to link non-consumptive recreation with a physical uh, impact, negative impact on wildlife populations. I thought they were doing so in order to try to, to leverage some way to get money from the non-consumptive user groups. I was opposed to that general idea. Not, not because I, I'm opposed... Well, I, we don't need to go in there. Okay, fine. If the agency has been saying that recreational use on these public lands is a negative detriment to the species, if sportsmen have to give up the ability to go hunt in the fall, should... Sportsmen are only out there for a couple weeks or a couple months... or uh, Yeah, a couple months out of the year. So... Yes, their impact is, is consumptive use on the landscape, it's, which is being removed. But so is their impact on the landscape. Should not cross-country skiers be removed from that? Shouldn't trail runners be removed from that? Shouldn't mountain bikers be removed from that? I know it's not popular. I Trust me, I understand. It's not popular. But if one, if one user group is going to take it in the ass, shouldn't everyone else have to take it in the ass as well? It's a, it's, a, it's a thought exercise that ought to be entertained because in that way, if, you, if sportsmen just continue to sit back on their thumbs and do nothing, or sit on one thumb and suck the other, and just and just sit there and complain and do nothing, you are going to be the ones that are pushed off of the landscape. Meanwhile, the mountain bikers, not really. The trail runners, eh, not really. The people that want to go hike the 14s, eh, not really. No other user group is significantly impacted. So they're not going to feel your pain and they're not going to be willing to come to your aid later on. That pain is going to have to be shared equally across the populace of Colorado because Colorado is the one that voted it in. Until the populace of Colorado starts to feel that pain and you can swing the public opinion away from the animal activists, you're done. You guys better get organized and start figuring out a way to do that. And I know it's not going to be popular. Well, I don't want to. I, I don't want to. We don't want to be make enemies. You are you are already public enemy number one. At some point, you got to start asking, like, how much are we losing here? I don't know. I, th- I'll end it with that because I don't know, folks. I don't know. This is completely uncharted territory. But I can tell you from my experience in working with activists, you give them the ability. Once they obtain the ability to set. Public policy and law. You're not getting. There is no going back. All right. I've got other conversations coming up. Uh, I've got some guests and I'm going to be on some other podcasts. So I'm going to kick this out to you guys. We'll have some other conversations coming up. Like, Like all of them have um, which I appreciate, don't get me wrong, I appreciate it, so, obviously, this is going to air, you guys are going to chew on it, I'm going to get a shit ton of uh, freaking feedback, again, I'm not, compl- I'm not complaining, I'm just saying, there's going to be a bunch of feedback coming back, I'm going to, which is good, when that feedback comes in, we'll just, we'll just keep chewing this freaking chunk of grizzle until it either chokes us and we die, or we process through it, but regardless, um, yeah, I don't, man, I, it just sucks, it just sucks, because, I mean, it's one thing as a non-resident to sit here and listen to the non, excuse me, it's one, it's one thing as a non-resident elk hunter, I don't hunt any other species in Colorado, maybe a bear, I'll, I'll get a bear tag, but I, I don't focus on Colorado hunting, it's, it's elk, um, But as a non-resident elk hunter, you know when I see the five-year big game season structure discussion coming up, um, you know, and all the it's and it's not that it's anything new. I mean, uh, non-resident hunters have always despised non-resident hunters largely, and resident hunters have always advocated for more restriction on non-resident hunters. So that's just that's that's part and parcel. I mean, that that's par for the course. But so as the five-year Big game season structure moves forward, and and to see that there's seems to be some pretty significant traction at this new phase of restricting non-resident hunting. As as a non-resident elk hunter, I'm like that sucks. I'm gonna have to start looking. You know, I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to figure out how to where to go elsewhere. Given what I'm seeing now with the realities of what is likely to occur with this wolf introduction, uh, it's done anyway. Like it's done anyway like so all of you all of you other western states that have non-resident elk hunting buckle up like it's gonna buckle up because it's not that we're gonna have how many hundreds of thousands of people or tens of thousands of hunters just go oh well i can't hunt anymore i guess i just might as well sell my bow no they're just gonna spill out i mean they're just gonna go somewhere else How we meet that demand, I have no idea. So, for you guys looking at the five-year big game season structure here in Colorado, you guys might want to consider the idea of something similar to what Aaron and I were talking about, where there's an early archery split, uh, um, you know, or you might really benefit from figuring out how to expand your hunting opportunities and parse them in different places and spread a lot of hunters out in different places across time, rather than just saying, screw it, we're going to leave this. Everything stays the same. We just eliminate the number of hunters. I I don't see how that works. I don't see how that works long-term. I think you want to talk about wolves bringing in a trophic cascade of impacts. Well, there's one. I think, I think the way that activists are bringing wolves into the state of Colorado now are kicking off and we're seeing it now we're going to start seeing it very soon it's going to kick off a trophic cascade of impacts to hunting in the state let alone whether it's resident hunters or non-resident hunters so you guys might want to really the resident hunters, the people that are involved with that five year big game season structure you guys might want to have some real come to Jesus moment type discussions within your communities and saying how the freaking hell Do we navigate this and hold on to who gives again I'm biased who gives a shit if it's non-resident or resident at this point how do we hold on to the elk hunting and the deer hunting that we have grown accustomed to and that we value moving forward these next five years my opinion I know full well I'm biased my opinion you may not want to make drastic changes to the five-year big game season structure. You may not want to make drastic changes to the the non-resident, resident allocate. You may not want to frickin' dick around with any of that stuff because that is going to be occurring simultaneously with this massive Wolf reintroduction play. You might want to just say, can we keep status quo or make like a minor change right now? And let's just see what the frickin' next five years looks like with with wolves on the landscape. You You've got an external factor that's a, that's about to throw a frickin' monkey wrench into the whole works. It may not be wise to start slashing your existing program and making massive changes. In an absolutely unstable and unpredictable future. So, with that, I'll close. I'll end it. As always, I appreciate everybody supporting and listening in. Um, yes, for those that are interested, I am going to be putting together a on the website uh, a, a podcast Patreon. Maybe I don't. I don't know if I'm going to use Patreon or just the existing PayPal. You guys, let me know what you guys want to use for for those that want to be able to chip in and provide some. Uh, assistance, financial assistance with me. I appreciate it because obviously, I, I had to put. I'm I'm trying to get my real estate license, and I'm going through the class. I've had to put that on hold for now, like for the past two weeks. Like, like this type of discussion and digging in and and picking apart papers and people and things, like. It, it takes away from me doing other stuff and so I've got to put my business on hold and so yeah it, it'd be good to be able to to at least get some support on that from those of you that are not in, in, interested in elk hunting that are not interested in some of the habitat who that don't give a shit about any of the edu- educational stuff that I'm doing I understand absolutely understand 100% so we're gonna we're, we're working on putting another little click thing where you guys can support uh if you want um and i you know everybody keeps sending you know if you've got papers journal articles people i should talk to uh issue if you have a if you're at a meeting just keep sending me the information because for some of you know I, I may not be having our conversation on the podcast you and i we may have private conversations in the in the, in, in the background you guys feed me information in the background. I will help feed you information in the background, and, and together we'll just try to see if we can't navigate this freaking this monster. But um, it's it's not just the Colorado issue. You know, Obviously, we've got a bunch of other sportsmen's issues across the United States. We have issues within our own camp on social media and everything else uh, that need to be addressed, and, th- and those conversations are going to be coming forthwith as well. But um, anyway, yeah. Kill it for now. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, Thanks for considering my thoughts, and let me know what you think. And until next time, uh, stay safe, and, uh, yeah, (laughs) good luck. See ya.